Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers episode 59. Remember who you are. I'm Scadian. With me as always is my buddy Matt. Toodaloo! <laughs> we will be covering this week our continuing reread of A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. The chapters for this week are very A Feast for Crows heavy. Yeah. We've got Brienne 4, Elaine 1. Hmm, who could that be? Arya 2. And Cersei 5. A lot of Cersei lately. Some uh, might that say is all too much. He's for crows. I would I would be one of those some. <laughs> uh, and then we are jumping over to A Dance with Dragons for one chapter there. That would be Reek 2. Can't wait. All right. Uh, just a couple announcements. Uh, first of all, I gave an update earlier this year about having gone to Ice and Fire Con. Uh, I had a blast. I've already re-upped uh, for next year, and the good organizers of Ice and Fire Con have provided us with a special promo code for our listeners. If you guys want to end up going to Ice and Fire Con, you can certainly hang out with uh, me. I'm still trying to wrangle Matt. We'll see if that happens or not. But uh, uh, our special <laughs> promo code, if you want to, to go get a ticket for that, is FINGERS. FINGERS. So just type that in at checkout. You can get, uh, I think it's 5 bucks off of like the $70 price tag. So um, not bad. And uh, love to see you there. Met a lot of uh, met a lot of listeners at the last one and, and just had a blast connecting with people of all kinds. And it was fun. So if you want to come, check it out. Yes. And if I don't go, it won't be because I don't want to. I know that. Right? I know that. Uh, some fun news in the Star Wars universe uh, from this past week or so, hey? Yeah. We had, um, so the Han Solo film, which is to come out in 2018, yeah. is already, has already been shooting. It's all, you know, it's all cast and everything. We got, uh, Daenerys Targaryen in it, among others. Oh, man, I forgot about um, that. <laughs> yeah. She looks great. But we just found out that the two directors got fired. I can't remember their names. You probably know them. You're into this kind of thing. Uh, one of them, Lord uh, Miller, maybe, or something? Yeah. They directed, I know they did, like, the Lego movie together, and they did the... Uh, Lego Batman, too, right? With, or did they yeah, not? Yeah, and the one with uh, Tanning Chatham and Jonah Hill. Tanning Chatham. Uh, <laughs> did I say Tanning Chatham? <laughs> you did. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, and, that's and about Hona, how important he is to you. And Hona Jill. And Hona Jill. Uh, 21 Jump Street. Yeah, uh, yeah, they did those two films as well. Well, 21 and 22 Jump Street. On the hill, on the, on the heels of uh, of knowing what they've done, what I heard for the reason for their dismissal doesn't come as that big of a surprise. <laughs> based on the films, yeah, that they were were laying out there. The claim was that they were making the film too goofy. Yeah, and and I uh, thought I thought I heard Han specifically as well, but like yeah, they had to come the, out. They're the, like the Han isn't that, funny. Yeah, the the comparison was made to Jim Carrey's Ace Ventura. I have oh, a feeling geez. that might be overstepping it a little bit. I hope so. Maybe over exaggerating. Um, but then there's another side of it that was saying that they wanted out because Kathleen Kennedy was being too, like, uh, too strict in the way she wanted things done and wasn't giving them any, uh, creative license or anything like that or freedom. Yeah. So I don't know. Well, but in any, any case, as usual, it's probably, it's probably a little of both. 
I mean, I, you probably know, probably not all to blame on one person, right? You know? I, I get the sense. I get the sense, and I, I just mean this from my own sense. I'm, I'm not. Uh, I don't have any sort of inside. You're information not an insider. That I'm, well, my sister writes stuff, so I don't want to. I don't want to imply that like this is feedback from her. But I get the sense, just myself, that you know they they keep a pretty tight grip on the way they feel these characters should go and what they want to do and reveal mm-hmm. and um you know so may, maybe not a lot of you know maybe not a lot of control given to them and yeah that can be difficult to work with right i'm trying to make a movie here i'm yeah. trying to make art here and you're not letting me do anything kind of a thing you can understand both sides i mean yeah. they've been tremendously successful with the two films that they've created yeah and uh so they they kind of probably justifiably feel like they've got this thing down, yes. but on the other hand, a director is going to want the freedom to right to direct the way they want to direct. So yeah, but but yeah. but I, I when I read that you know like the the, the Han is not they're like Han is not funny. I was like you know what they're right. Han isn't Han isn't like a jokester. He's not he's not out you know to get chuckles, you know. He he is funny, I mean, kind of circumstantially yeah, with sometimes. his sarcastic way, right, right. <clears throat> but he's not he's not a joking character, so um, you know. And I, the way that you, and the way that you, can write a uh, well lead supporting character, like I would say Han is a lead character in the Star Wars character. films, right? Yeah. But when you give him his own film, yeah. You've got to really flesh out that character more, right? And all his lines can't be the sarcastic yeah. sidelines that he sometimes had in 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 the Star Wars films. You've yeah. got to you got to give him a, a real fleshed out, deep character. Yeah, so. and you know what? I I didn't think about that until you just brought that up. But I don't think I've read any novels that had him as a kind of front and center character. He showed up in Bloodline mm-hmm. uh briefly. But I don't think I've read any of it. I mean I know you've done the extended universe stuff, but with Kathleen yeah. and her group, like they're probably trying to really toe the line and figure out what drives this guy and who he is, right? Yeah, so I'm interested to see if they follow that extent expanded universe at all cuz he's got uh, be six novels dedicated to him, two trilogies, yeah. what they were. Plus, um, I'm sure ex- he's a featured character universe. in a bunch of others too. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. But they're they're pre Star Wars or pre movie books that uh, that go into when one was when he was in the Imperial Navy and just got out, and the other was just his time shortly before Episode Four. So yeah, both interesting. Anyways, yeah. um, uh, they certainly got a good guy at the helm now, at least in terms of a resume. That being Ron Howard. So interested to see where that goes. Yeah. Yeah. I just watched Apollo 13 like a month ago, so I'm pretty up to date on his filmography. (laughs) Well, Ron Howard, (laughs) interestingly, unless I'm misremembering, uh, didn't he give Harrison Ford his start in, uh, what is it, that uh, American Graffiti? Uh, yeah, I guess he did, didn't he? Because Ron Howard was involved with that, and you know George Lucas was as well. But, but yeah, yeah, it's kind of like yeah, full circle right. on the Han Solo Harrison Ford yeah. thingy, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, 
Yeah, a capable director for sure. Um, kind of an interesting choice. I mean, they, they seem for these movies seem to be choosing kind of newer kind of directors kind of for almost the most part. Indie-ish. Yeah, yeah it's a little Gareth Edwards and who's that Ryan guy who's doing Ryan Johnson, who I, who I love, yeah. but I mean, his resume really isn't that large. Um, uh-huh. But uh, he did a, a Some... movie called Brick that I just love. It's like a, a teen noir. It's awesome. But um, Sounds yeah, like they just needed to bring someone in who could take control, steady the ship, just yeah, get the ball rolling, and yeah, move quickly. Get a guy who's got all those movies under his belt, you know, right? Yeah, not many better. So. All right. Well, uh, last thing, just a quick update on some bonus content. So uh, we've got uh, our first of what will hopefully be many uh, bonus episodes that we're going to be working on and recording uh, in August. Uh, coming up for our Patreon supporters uh, of certain levels. Uh, and just, I guess we wanted to just kind of announce the topic here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's going to be a whole different format from our normal, you know, some chapter summary, discuss, dad kind of format. So it'll be different. Uh, but we do have the topic. It's about parenting in Westeros, something that we've talked quite a bit about, something that Matt mm-hmm. and I have personal experience with parenting. Um, and we'll just kind of run the gamut from Craster to Selwyn, <laughs> you know, and, uh, <laughs> kind of talk about the ups and downs and maybe throw in some, uh, you know, some extra special little segments in there. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. We wanted to do something that was meaningful to us and we've always joked about best and worst fathers in Westeros. And like Scad said, with us being dads ourselves, uh, I think that we'll have hopefully some some interesting thoughts on parenting in Westeros. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to dive in. I've already started uh, doing a little bit of research uh, on it, and uh, yeah, we'll be recording that sometime in August, and uh, be looking for that. Yep. All right, uh, moving on. So uh, we give this announcement every time. We are spoiler free until the end of the podcast, so we'll be only revealing that information that goes along with the chapters up to the point where we've read uh, for this episode until the end. And we have a special segment called Davos After Dark at that point. It'll get all spoilery and fun. Uh, but if you don't want those spoilers, jump off. We'll warn you with a little musical jingle to let you know when you need to do that. So, Yep, and as always, if you want to chat with us, bring up any future topics or just give your thoughts on things. We've had a lot of people giving us thoughts, everything from how we talk about Ariane Martell to um, what whiskey I ended up getting for the hockey doctor yeah what did you go everything and and anything in between it was uh one of them that you suggested um and now i totally forgot maker's mark or it was maker's mark yes yep that's i like that it's a good kind of you know middle of the road he seemed he seemed pleased okay he seemed very pleased great you know i'll let i'll take his word for it (laughs) but not mine all right all right (laughs) Well, I took your word. I bought that for him. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for the suggestion. Yeah. But anyways, we love hearing from you guys, whether it's positive or negative or somewhere in between. We love it. So continue to reach out through us. You can find us at DavosFingers.com. Our email address is WeAreDavosFingers at gmail.com. Our Twitter is at DavosFingers. And we're also on Facebook. We love you. We love chatting with you. Absolutely. I've been a little... A little bit late, a little bit late on the email responses, but I'll get back on it. I was on vacation and 
You were on Mexico time, buddy. I, I was, yeah, but I'll, I'm a good thing. jumping right back into it here. We'll hopefully well respond some break. tonight. Well All right. Deserved. So, should we jump right in? Mm-hmm. All right, we've got Brienne 4 coming at you. Let's hear it. If you could see what we could see, oh, I swear you would believe. Conviction, grace, and pride, swear the beauty you don't have to hide behind the lies Oh, your fate, they can't decide Well, Brienne, you'll always be A beauty to me Brienne and Pod make their way from Duskendale to Cracklaw Point with the most nimble of Richards. The further they get from Duskendale, the only thing more scarce than people is trust as Brienne continually rebuffs Dick's advances toward a quality team effort. But who can blame her? She certainly has had her run-ins with dishonest folk. She's kind of trying to protect herself. Further, her suspicions are confirmed, actually, when Pod catches Crab fondling through her saddlebag for gold and coming up empty. Here's the thing, though. She's pretty much out of options. She doesn't know the way through this area to where Sansa supposedly is, and she has zero other leads. She kind of just has to weather the Nimble Dick storm, as it were. So I don't know why he's called Nimble Dick. He should have been called Never Shuts the Fuck Up Dick, because this guy sings and tells stories like the whole trip. Mostly about Cracklaw itself, full of bogs and forests. This small area of Westeros, peopled with first men originally, put up a huge fight whenever anyone attempted to conquer them. They only bow, bow down to the Dragon Kings in the end, the True Kings and send all other comers to their deaths or back with their tails beneath their legs. Or at least so Dick says. It's some fun storytelling banter with Dick, but still, Brienne doesn't seem to trust him, leaving him on the ground floor of a barn whilst Pod and she bed down in the loft where it's safe from rain and from Dick himself. She remembers a maxim from her youth, that she could find her truth in a mirror, but not to look for it from men, a lesson that saved her from the hile hunts of the world, and she imagines that this advice is keeping her safe now too. So, more walking in rainy forests, more tales from Dick and sleeping now out in the peninsular elements. Still no progress in the trust department. The road becomes a path, becomes a trail, becomes a forest, as they spot a rider following them from a small cliff they've ascended. Everyone claims innocence, and they decide they will lose him in the woods, like the days of old that Dick spoke of in his stories. But what they lose instead in the wood is their nerves. The wood is quiet. Too quiet. The trees are oppressive, and the forest floor is so covered in pine needles that even their horses make no sound. Everything was still. Even Dick's singing couldn't break the somber spell. It became painfully clear that Dick could easily lead them astray here, and no one would be the wiser, or even be able to find their way back if they did happen to get wise. Bogs and hills and trees upon more trees, and Brienne finally just loses her pace, and she's like, How much longer? We must have seen every tree in Cracklaw Point by now. But Dick indicates they're close, and Brienne's heart and mind harden for the coming showdown. Whether it be an ambush by Dick and his friends, or a successful rescue of the ever-elusive Sansa and company, she remembers her lessons, that you must not hesitate, that all battle prowess can be overcome in an instant if a man flinches from killing. Brienne feels that she might finally be really battle-tested. But she isn't wrong. They shortly come upon the Whispers, an old fallen-down castle on the edge of a cliff. The waves crashing into the cliff make for the whispering sound of the legend. 
although the legend says it's severed heads whispering to their maker, Sir Clarence Crabb. They make their way around the back of the castle to find a hacked berry bush leading to the back door. Someone is here. Before entering, she has Pod bring her Oathkeeper, providing her own sword to Dick, her trust issues giving way to very real unease about who may lay behind this door. Pod, though, is to stay behind and guard the horses. They creep in, but any chance of taking them by surprise ruined by a rusty gate. Hello! Dick calls. And a figure moves in Brienne's periphery. Another slides out from the well. And a third drops from the werewood in the center of the castle. Brienne knows these men. Pig, Timian, and the fool that Nibble Dick had promised. Shagwell. George, you beautiful troll, you, I love you. All three of them brave companions, bloody mummers that were part of the original party that captured Jamie and Brienne. And they've now scattered to the wind, as most of their number had after the mountain ruined Vargo Hood at Harrenhal. They're all kind of all scattered all over the place. Shagwell wastes no time in dispatching Dick, ruining his knee and then his face with two crushing blows from his triple-headed Morningstar. They circle Brienne next, trying to surround her. And they get in some great villain banter as they get closer, revealing to Brienne the fate of the Mummers, as well as the fact that one of Stark's daughters is with the Hound in the Riverlands. She stores the knowledge for later, then leaps to attack Pig before they can get too close. She stabs him in the thigh, then unflinching, ends him in his throat. She turns just in time to avoid a spear in the head thrown by Timian. Now only two on one, the companions like their odds a little less. Still, one was behind and one in front. She was about to go all in and attack one, exposing herself to the other, when a rock flies in and hits Shagwell in the head. Brienne flies at Timian and ends him quickly, slashing off his ear, his cheek, the head of his spear, his hand, and buries Oathkeeper deep into his Dornish belly. Shagwell, pummeled by hurled stones, tries to yield. He is spared so that he can dig a grave for Dick with his hands. It takes him all day, but finally Brienne can lay nimble Dick, honest Dick, trustworthy Dick, in the ground with the two dragons she promised him. As she does so, Shagwell attacks. She parries his rock and thrusts her dagger into his bowels. Laugh, she commands as she pledges her blade in him over and over and over. Laugh, 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 laugh. She was sobbing by the end, but not a chuckle came from Shagwell. As she and Pod say goodbye to Dick, they are interrupted by the laughter of Hyle Hunt, assigned by Lord Randall to follow her and bring Sansa back if they happen to find her. And just as in real life, when one dick exits your life, another finds a way in. And that's the end of the chapter. Lots of fun! Yeah, I realized just now I failed to even mention who was throwing the rocks uh, in the summary. Pod had climbed the wall uh, and thrown these rocks at Shagwell, despite having been told to stay behind and guard the horse. Yeah, so His Marion Pippin game was strong. His Marion Pippin game was very strong, yes. a boy. Oh boy. Yeah. So, uh, if I'm not mistaken, this was, uh, these were Brienne's first actual kills. Am I right? Yeah, I think so. I, I kind of mentioned that in the summary that, uh, she, this is kind of her first real mm-hmm. test, right? And she's, it's kind of playing mind games with her a little bit as she goes, um, you know, wondering if she can really perform in battle the same way she's performed in these you know, these tourneys and stuff that she's done. Yeah, the practice yard and everything. 
and uh, she did pretty dang good. She was wondering if she was going to, uh, what is it? Flinch. Uh, flinch from killing. Yeah. And she didn't even react. She acted. Yep. Like, she went for the first blow. Yes. And, uh, and did a great job. She did. Yep. She did. Yep. And, uh, again, I love, I love the way George handles these, these battle scenes because fights that are two or three on one, you, you shouldn't leave unscathed. And, mm-hmm. uh, Brian doesn't. She takes a couple, uh, a couple minor blows. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, without, without Podrick interceding, you know, likely would have been dispatched probably. Right. So anyway, yeah. uh, kind of a, you know, kind of a, a Lord of the Ringsy chapter. Lots of, lots of traveling, you know, <laughs> a good fellowship of the ring chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Kind of lots of, you know, walking through the woods at a ponderous pace and remarking on the landscape and, you know, things like that. Speaking of the landscape, uh, Sakan Susmapas for Cracklaw Point, um, which is, I guess it's still part of, part of the Crownlands. Yeah, it is. Just kind of the very, if you look, kind of follow Duskendale right along the coast, uh, you can see Cracklaw Point there. Um, mm-hmm. Just north of Driftmark and Dragonstone, very close to Dragonstone, actually. Um, right. I was trying to think of, I was trying to think of like a, a place that that sounded like. I didn't have anything in my own repertoire of travel that 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 this reminded me of. So I actually asked uh, some of our patrons if they had recommendations of things that sounded similar, and uh, a couple of people came through. Maja Maurice indicated that the Isle of Skye in Scotland reminded her of. She sent a link. To, it looked gorgeous, but to me it didn't quite <coughs> look creepy or wooden enough. But she also indicated Tasmania and sent some links for that. And that struck me as just about right. And additionally, hmm. Robert Huck indicated like coastal Maine. And I checked into that too, doing some searches and stuff. And that looks like a dead ringer also. Lots of kind of caves and... Um... Yeah, that's just kind of thinking like along the coast, either west or east. Yeah. Uh, you know, getting up into like the Oregon and Washington area on the west coast. It... But yeah, that all seemed good. Yeah. I was reading those comments from them too. And also uh, reasonably close to who she's trying to find, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Cracklaw well, Point ahead. is is uh, just south of the Erie. And obviously she would have to get through, you know, the Gates of the Moon or the Bloody Gate and everything to get to Sansa. But she's actually reasonably close for as big as Westeros is to exactly who she's trying to find. Yeah, it's one of those uh, reasonably close, but still forever away from the you know the sake of knowledge of knowing that she's there. A and B, as as we'll see in Elaine's chapter very soon, knowing someone's in the Erie and being able to get there are completely mm-hmm. different things. <laughs> but, yeah, but uh, yeah, she is she is pretty close and uh, interesting too that she gets a lead here about. Someone that now is nowhere near, you know, if she goes looking for the hound, she's not going to find Arya. Arya's, you know, a whole sea away now. Yep. But uh, a little bit of a new lead for her, I, I suppose, something to keep the hope going. Right? Yep. Keep the dream alive. Yeah. What does he say in Rogue One? 
Uh, Keep the dream. Or whatever. I don't remember what he says. I don't remember either. Save the rebellion. Save the dream. Um... Okay, uh, the the Brienne laugh 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 bit reminded yeah. me a lot of the Sansa or the Arya. Arya how many how many how many bit mm-hmm. very very similar. Left Brienne crying at the end though. Yes, uh, and Arya not so much. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, the the way they uh, they deal with it are very very different. You know, Arya, I yeah, guess, yeah. kind of hardened by that point, and this is Brienne's first kill, and also just kind of a an emotional release of the last couple, I don't know what it's been, a week that they've been traveling through Cracklaw Point? Two? Two weeks? I don't know, a while. And um, she's been on edge the whole time. This, you know, just yeah, a bit of a release. I think it may even go deeper than that. Oh, yeah? The way that, the way that she's spoken to in this chapter by these men straight to her face. I don't even want to repeat it. It's despicable. And she's heard maybe stuff that's not that bad to her face, but she has been spoken to in a derogatory manner so many times in her life by men and women. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but wonder if this is, you know, this is finally her chance to, to strike back and, and I wonder if she really just released all of that pent up anger and frustration and hurt into this guy and all the laughing that's been done in her at her expense over all the years. Yeah. She's just taken it out with you know, ferociously. And we've seen her, you know, take things out on people before. I'm thinking of the uh Renly Tourney. Maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um where she beat up all of the guys that had <laughs> made fun of her um, or that had been playing that jape on her, right? Uh-huh. Uh, but this was her uh, just letting him have it, you know? Yeah, and and he's, he's not a bad target. I mean, in addition to the representative, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, target that he is, actually a very real target of revenge for her as well, you know, yeah. being part of the mummers that that mistreated her and threatened rape and, Jamie. and, and all mm-hmm. of that. So uh, both a representational target as well as a real one that she can unleash on. So, yeah, right. I like that. Yeah. Speaking of Brienne and Jamie, mm. the shippers get some great moments in this chapter. One, the, Don't uh, they ever. Uh, Brienne has replaced Renly with Jamie in her dreams, putting the cloak around her. Mm-hmm. And then immediately says to herself, it was Renly she wanted, of course. Oh, yeah, I like Renly. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I actually wrote a little tweet about this. You were sunbathing in Mexico, so I, I don't read know it, if though. you saw it. I read it. Yeah, you, got yeah. a lot of, you got a lot of response from it, actually, from what I saw. Uh, Surprising amount. I, I yeah. wasn't planning on that, but... That was cool. I, somebody uh, somebody said it was their favorite tweet ever or something. I was like, sheesh. wow. Follow more people. But yeah. thanks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Follows yeah. only us. Yeah, it was kind of the same situation when I kind of started dating my wife. I, I was kind of dating this other girl who wasn't interested in a relationship with me, but was interested in... Uh, not hooking up because 
and 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 just hanging out with me but not a real relationship and i was like well she and i are perfect together and we have the best chemistry of anyone ever and i'm gonna wait till she's ready mm-hmm. and it was amidst that waiting period that i met who is now my wife and it was the same thing i was like wait i'm supposed to be thinking of this other girl we'll call her renly i'm supposed to be thinking of renly but all i can think of is jamie and ta-da here we are 11 something years later so that's a very nice story yeah but i have to i I have to ask a follow-up question on the the dirty details what do mormon (laughs) couples that are just hanging out do if it's not that like what what was she in it for companionship she liked the way you read a verse she it's unspeakable oh yeah it was that it was my guitar playing skills i I meant i meant like a, a bible verse uh, <laughs> Book of Mormon. Come on, she's like, just read Come to on. me, Matt. <laughs> oh, good times. But... <laughs> All right. Well, I won't make you uh, go into it. Uh... It would be ungentlemanly of me to <laughs> re- elaborate. This podcast is who... nothing if not gentlemanly. <laughs> who liberally talks about his bowel movements on the air? <laughs> yeah. Uh... But, uh, yeah, I went and found, so like you mentioned, she imagined Jamie fastening the rainbow cloak about her shoulders, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I went back and found um, uh, the passage when Renly had originally done that after she won the tourney. And uh, the line says, uh, when Renly cut away her torn cloak and fastened a rainbow in its place, Brienne of Tarth did not look unfortunate. Her smile lit up her face, and her voice was strong and proud as she said, My life for yours, your grace. The way she looked at the king was painful to see. She doesn't love him, though. Nope. Nope. (laughs) Nope. Love you, Brooke. Uh, Yeah, so it was one of Brienne's probably happiest, most proud moments um, the way she looked at the king was painful to see. Her, her smile lit up her face. Um, this is just a short time after Catelyn describes to us how ugly Brienne is. Right. And now she's throwing her a bone saying she did not look unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a good bone. <laughs> it's the best you can do, Cat. Yeah. Uh, so so even more interesting that now she's imagining Jamie in the place of Renly in that very happy moment in her life. So. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a weird thing. You don't usually go to your go-to happy memories and replace parts of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, especially big parts like who the major player is. Um, Yeah. The one she was doing it all for in the first place. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyways. So uh, how how about the creepy wood? Did you like the creepy wood? It was scary. It was scurry. Yeah. It reminded me a bit of the, uh, the, uh, the empire bit with yoda and luke about uh oh. the only thing being in there is uh what you take with you right uh-huh the only thing you'll find in there is what you take with you yeah um because they're they're scared in that in that wood and brain's like well it's just a wood you know there's nothing in here but you know trees and you know your own your own fears playing tricks on you right mm-hmm yeah, 
but there's definitely something ominous going on there. You have to wonder how much of the history that Nimble Dick's relaying is is true and everything. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's embellished, but uh, you know, they give evidence that they go up and down a hill and land in a bog and have to retreat. Mm-hmm. And if you know the land, you can certainly lead people into those kinds of things and then take sure. advantage. And bodies get lost in the swamp. And mm-hmm. um, I buy it. I mean, I'm sure it's embellished, but I I buy it. And they won a victory, and that's yeah. what matters in the end. It made me think of like the uh, different sides of the American Revolutionary War, right? Mm. The Americans see it as this huge victory. We did it. We cast out our captors and, and did all this thing. But you ask people over in Britain, and they're like, back then, it was like, well, it just got to the point where the United States was colony feasible. clear there. Yeah. It, just, it just wasn't a big deal anymore. We weren't going to send people over there to die, so we just pulled out. No big deal. You know, right. <laughs> and you have to wonder if it was like that with Cracklaw Point. Like, the Andals are like, Meh, yeah, it's we'll all right, but yeah, we'll just move on. <laughs> yeah, and you know, you you maybe need to take Dick's words with some grain of salt. I mean, he's talking about how uh, you know the prowess of the crabs, and he yeah. gets dismantled by Shagwell in seconds. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't think he's. I don't think he's intentionally dishonest, but he's a, he's an embellisher about some things. He's clearly embellished his own ability with a sword, um, <laughs> you know, and maybe that embellishment extends to other things. Yeah. In the end, he's proud of his family. He's proud of his heritage. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Get it on you, nimble and R.I.P. Buddy. Indeed. Makes you wonder how many uh, how many crabs are are out there. Like, is he the last of the crab line? That'd be sad. No. I didn't I look. Know. Unprepared. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We could check. Eh. But, but no, I'm, I'm, none of them come to mind. Yeah. Uh, do you think Brienne should have trusted him a little more? Or was her distrust a little... Was it appropriate? I think her level of trust was appropriate. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, would it be nice? Sure. But based on the history she's got with with men and people in general and how they treat her, I don't blame her at all. Um, She's certainly, you know, she's got Pod to protect as well, to think about that. Um, But she's, she's got a responsibility to try to find these girls and protect pod. And I think she has to mm-hmm. be wary. She has to be wary of situations like this. And when the guy puts his hands in your saddle purse and proves that he's willing to rifle through your shit, you know, it's no, not exactly sure. comforting. Yeah. So for sure. Yeah. I don't, I don't blame her. Um, but, but it is interesting. I mean, even her own thoughts indicate that she feels bad for not trusting him more. Right. She's like, ah, oh, I used to be able to trust people. That indicates that she feels like she should trust him, and mm-hmm. she just can't bring herself to do it. And I don't, I don't blame her for it, really. That's one thing I really like about Brienne. We've talked about this before that when she's all in, she's all in, yeah. and she she often thinks so little of herself. Yet she, same 
you know, just like Sam thinks so little of himself. Um, but when Brienne has to do what she's got to do, she's got to do it. And even though she kind of feels like she's got to be nicer to Crab, sorry, I got a job to do. And being nice to you is not going to get me there any faster. And it's the same when she started killing the the uh, those three guys. She had a job to do. She yeah. was going to do it. And she was going to do it ferociously. And uh, I love that about Brienne. Dogged pursuit of her goals. Yeah. Dogged was the word I was just about to use. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Just did a quick uh, wiki search. There is a red jack crab who is a member of the Night's Watch. All right. Yep. Um, however, you know, he's a member of the Night's Watch. So yeah. not going to get a lot of posterity from him, probably. No. Oh, yeah. Probably a dying line. A dying line. Yep. Which uh, they mentioned about the Bruins as well. Sounds like it was maybe a dying line. So mm-hmm. maybe a whole dying area. Cracklaw area. Mm-hmm. All right. Shall we move on? You got anything else? Uh, nope. All right. Let's move on. We've got Elaine next, which is me again. Don't know when a prince will come, but surely he's going to come for Santa Stark. Can't be looking like a toy, and her daddy killed a wolf. Is Sansa Stark? Elaine wakes up like a damn cartoon character, grabs the nearest robe, strides to her balcony, and gazes upon the veil in all its splendor, which I imagine looks somewhat like the countryside in Beauty and the Beast. And start singing her wake-up song, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Birds flying down and landing on her wrist, all that jazz. Yep. Truly, it looks glorious, but she can't help but also check in on the Lord's declarant buzzing around. Uh, at the foot of the mountain, and wishing she could squash them like the ants they appear to be from that height. We've heard of the Lord's Declarant before, you might remember. Powerful Lords of the Vale, they're trying to ensure the safety of Robert Aaron, essentially by removing Peter from the equation. She pulls herself from the balcony, dresses in a pretty Tully-flavored thing, and makes her way to breakfast, where she joins an inconsolable Robert Aaron. He had wanted eggs for breakfast, but there are no eggs. See, the Lord's Declarant aren't letting food in, the first step toward an actual siege. Robert refuses to eat his porridge and is fit to be tied because he couldn't sleep. Instead, he heard Merillion singing all through the night, or so he claims. Elaine insists to him that Merillion is dead and tries again with the porridge, supported by Peter this time, who's arrived, and a reminder that his bannermen are coming up the mountain to see him today. Eight of them, in fact, including Lynn Corbray, a man not to be trifled with, Lynn is quick to anger and deadly, having led a famous charge on the trident and killing Prince Lewin Martell himself, a member of the Kingsguard. While Sir Lionel Corbray is on Peter's side, Sir Lynn loves him not. Now, if they thought that information would help little Robert's disposition, they were wrong. Robert wants to make the lords fly, and he wants to make his porridge fly too, flinging it from himself and starting yet another fit. He's removed to be leeched as per usual. Littlefinger has his once-per-chapter little creepy encounter with Elaine before dispersing her with some instructions. Get some wine mold for the guests, greet the guests, offer them some cheese and bread, and change your clothes, Elaine, and remember no fucking blue! Don't wear any blue. But she's worried, before she leaves, about Bronze Yon Royce, one of the members of the Lord's Declarant that's coming up. She's met him before, twice in fact, once at Winterfell, and then again at the Hand's Tourney. But Peter reassures her. It was a long time ago, and she was younger. She looked different then, different hair color. 
taller now, all this stuff. He dismisses her, but she asks the question first. Why not just give in? Give them the veil. Give them Robert. They could go to Harrenhal, which you might remember is his seat. His response is interesting. Harrenhal is too big, too ruined, impossible to garrison. Essentially, he turns his nose up at Harrenhal and then adds, And there's that small matter of a curse. If it's so cursed, we should give it to the phrase. Santa counsels him. And Peter replies, Or Circe. That starts Sansa worrying again. Circe's name being kind of a tolling bell of dread for Sansa whenever it gets brought up. But Pete goes into Papa Bear mode, assuring Elaine that he could simply remove Circe from the board earlier than he intended if she found out about Sansa's location. Elaine finishes her tasks, changes clothes, and welcomes the lords with cheese and bread and wine. She passes the test, convincing everyone there that she's not known to them, and that she's in fact Peter's bastard daughter of 14 years and newly flowered. They're taken to the solar, seated, and immediately set upon by Peter's machinations. Peter wants to sign their declaration. By all means, let us root them out, these false friends and evil counselors, he says. They're all stunned into silence, save Bronze Yon Royce, who tells Peter to stop messing around. I can kind of just imagine Bronze Yon Royce just kind of sighing and rolling his eyes like he's dealt with this all before. Peter relents, stops playing games, and asks what they actually want. What they want, briefly. Peter gone, and Lord Robert to be fostered at Runestone with Bronzio and Royce. They're all unified in this idea. Honestly, their plan sounds really good. Peter agrees with the broad strokes. Peter knows that uh, that Robert needs boys his age around and should have a younger knight to emulate as well. He suggests, actually, that Lady Wainwood send Harold Hardying to come stay with him at the Eyrie. Again, though, Yon flattens him. This is all happening at Runestone under our terms. Stop trying to change things around. And another member of the Lord's Declarant adds, If you leave now, you can do so peacefully. Peter insists, though, that this is his proper seat. Lady Lysa be- bequeathed it to him before her death and made him Lord Protector until Robert came of age. Peter's only ally in the room then comes to his aid. Lord Nestor Royce insists that if any of them had wed Lysa... They would have respected their right to stewardship, and they should respect Peter's. Well said, says I. Peter's a man of the veil. Why do they have any right to do this to him? Peter keeps it going on that note. Robert will not be leaving. He's not strong, and the journey would tax him to go anywhere else. Bronzion threatens back. We shall have Lord Robert. Unexpected by all at this point, Lynn Corbray draws his sword, threatens Peter's physical person, and commands him to draw his own blade and defend himself. But the noble Royce again intercedes. Put up your steel, sir. Are you a Corbray or a Frey? All the lords declarant respond in kind, embarrassed by Lynn's outburst. Peter wastes zero time turning this to his advantage, indicating that he should have all of them arrested for this display, and while on their heels, he makes his own demands. Leave now, take your armies with you, leave us in peace, and he will fix their government. He admits that there's been misrule, and he pledges to fix it within a year. If he cannot do this, he'll step down as Lord Protector. If they don't follow these terms, he promises a fight with the help of King's Landing at his back. The Lord's Declarant consider this, agree, and after a feast make their way back down the mountain. Alone with her thoughts that night, something niggles at Elaine, so she goes to Peter to hear what will happen in a year. Peter replies that some of the Lord's Declarant will die, some he'll buy, some he'll befriend, 
and others will remain cold to him. But Sir Lynn Corbray will fight tooth and nail at every opportunity to oppose him. And how shall you reward him? Elaine asks. With gold, boys, and promises. Peter is a master player, no? He played those lords declarant like a fiddle. Indeed. Did he ever? Boy, he pounced, man. He pounced. Yeah. After the Corbray thing. As if he knew it was coming. Because oh, he I did. What was going on there? So, this is a little... I, I don't, Our readers probably all got it, but, but let's just cover it real quick. It's, it's a little hmm. bit... A little bit hard to follow. So, essentially, Peter has bought Lynn Corbray with gold boys and promises Mm -hmm. to be his foil, if you will. To Mm -hmm. be so over the top against Peter that others maybe are like, he's not that bad. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, to kind of like take Peter's side to kind of gain him allies because this guy's so over the top against him. It's Bad kind of an form. interesting tactic. Yeah. Yep. And and apparently he plans on using that tactic for the next year as well. And uh I don't know, interesting that that Sir Lynn is willing to play along with this. I wonder what he's been promised. Mhm. Well, you know what Littlefinger said he's promised him. We promised him gold and boys mm-hmm. and promises. So, like, I, I assume that I to see. be some sort of future considerations, like... Holdings. Yeah, or, like, Lands. getting Lionel out of the way is his, uh, his older brother. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know that. That's just a theory. Yep. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's just... <laughs> he's such a good player. Like, he's just... He sees so many angles... Seems like he's always in front. I mean, to that point, he just kind of dismissively is just like, ah, yeah, well, if Cersei finds out, we'll just get rid of her. Like, it would just be a snap of his fingers. I I still just don't know how this guy even sleeps. Yeah, it's true. Like, he's got to keep a little black book where he keeps a running, just like, history of everything he's got going on. Because how can he keep all these balls spinning in the air. It's just crazy to me. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, yeah. More power to him. Uh, Sansa. Elaine. Elaine. I, uh, <laughs> you, you can take the Stark out of the North, but I don't know if you can take the North out of the Stark. <laughs> she says, winter will make this place as cold as any tomb. This this the classic winter is coming, mm-hmm. Stark line, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I like that they he throws that in there pretty early. Just he to, does, you know. If you had any question of whether Elaine is Sansa Stark, that's going to go away pretty quick. <laughs> and indicative that Sansa is still a Stark. Yes, which is uh, one sort of the of themes, this subliminal thing. Mm-hmm. One of the themes of the episode. Remember who you are. Um, yeah. We saw in, in Brienne's chapter some memories of people that taught her lessons uh, growing up that she's remembered and taken with her in this journey into Cracklaw Point and into the battle itself. 
and you know here we have Elaine and her starkness kind of coming through um, mm-hmm. and kind of having to continue to catch herself and remind herself that she's Elaine and not Sansa and we'll get more of those in some of these other chapters coming up but uh, even he throws in these little physical nuggets for us uh, the line is it was seldom when she's dying her hair it was seldom long before the red began creeping back at the roots yes right just little nuggets like that right but yeah we're going to see in this uh, aria chapter coming up uh it's interesting how both of these sisters are so desperately trying to uh, fully take on this new identity um, or assume this new identity, but uh, finding it hard to leave behind their former selves and in a way not wanting to. Yeah, right. right. They're almost doing it kind of half-heartedly. Yeah, very much so. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, did you have, uh, hmm. Well, I have a note here about the pinch of sweet sleep in, in, uh, Robert's milk. Yeah. Like it sounds, yeah. so this is Peter basically playing maester. So this is in mm-hmm. response to, <laughs> basically they send him to bed and leech him all the time. And, and Peter's like, I need him awake occasionally to do stuff. Right. And he says, I need to parade him out in front yeah. of people sometimes. So try a little sweet sleep in his in his milk. But it, it got me, and the maester seems receptive to this. He's like, oh yeah, maybe you know a little bit that might work. But to me, it reminded me of like drugging him. Yeah. Like maybe so he'll rubber stamp shit, or maybe so that he'll gain a dependency on it and need more and more, and then become crazy, or. I don't know. These are all yeah, just theories. The problem with sweet sleep is it's a it's it's a fine line between helping people relax and killing them. Yeah. If you just get a little too much in there, it can be deadly. So. Right. Yeah. Interesting. I don't think it's in any way spoiling to speculate as to what Peter wants. He wants the eerie. Yes. And uh, if he can have Robert Aaron removed by seemingly natural causes, then ta-da. Yeah, although, you know, interesting. He doesn't want to send him on this trip, which to me, I'm reading the Lord's declarant uh, terms, and I'm like, that sounds great. That sounds great for Robert. Absolutely. Yep, I thought the same thing. That sounds like exactly what he needs. <laughs> this is 100% what he needs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, will he survive the basket ride? I don't know. But <laughs> he needs something. Yeah, get him out there with uh, with a, a good, strong father figure in, in Mr. Royce. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, surround him with some of those types of things. It sounds like the Royce household is a, is a fairly... You know, they're an old house, and uh, they're a successful house, and he's got a very strict but effective way, it seems like, of doing things, a very proud house. And I think Robert could could do well there. A first men house, too. Um, Yeah. And, yeah, and and unfortunately, you know, from from Robert's perspective and, um, you know, maybe from the Lord's declaring perspective, money wins out, right? Like, you kind of get... Peter throws that little line in there. He's like, there's been misrule. I'll fix it. And 
what they're really worried about is not Robert at all, but their own lands and titles and money and flow of goods and stuff being fixed. Right? Mm-hmm. As soon as that gets promised, they're like, okay, well, let's see how you do then. Yeah, we'll give you. We'll give you some time. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah. there's like no shred of doubt to me that Peter will fix those things. <laughs> like, seems like he's fully capable of fixing whatever problems he wants to. I mean, yeah, look at what he did in King's Landing. Yeah. <laughs> A fascinating guy, Peter. Like, we we don't spend near enough time talking about him for like what he seems capable of doing and how big a player he seems to be. But it's 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 just like you almost can't fathom it. Like I, I feel like I almost don't talk about him enough because I just can't I can't plumb him to the depths that I would give any sort of reasoned, intelligent response as to who he is. Yeah, we don't you know really I mean? know anything. Like, it's hard. I just can't yeah. I can't get a handle on him. Yeah. It's hard to extrapolate. You don't know much really factually about him right so it's it's tough it's incredibly fascinating though i agree so. yeah uh one little quick thing uh i see this may be a show thing people associating ned with sean bean and boromir and things like that but i see <laughs> ned included all the time in these best fighter lists just please don't just stop doing it He's not a great fighter. He's probably not even really a good fighter. This huh. is the, this is the only you don't think proof. So? Well, she, Sansa talks about Bronzion pounding him into the ground. Uh huh. Like, no, like he's just average. He's just a dude. Yeah, I don't. I like, would say he's a good fighter to have survived as long as he's had and everything. Yeah, maybe. We, I mean, we know he survived the Arthur Tower Dane. of Joy, but like yeah. beyond that, how many battles has he really? been in the we don't know right? we, the real answer is we don't know but he doesn't belong on any best fight he doesn't belong on any top 10 lists let's put it that way not not from the evidence that we've got in front of us yeah yeah but yeah. bronze he's not might. arthur dane or, or jamie lannister right yeah he seems just like a monster he's just a big dude that gets yeah. the job done yeah just a powerful meat hands kind of yeah yeah Bobby Baratheon probably would have loved fighting beside Mr. Royce. Or with, yeah. 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 And fun throwback uh, to the the prologue chapter of Game of Thrones. Waymar Royce. Yeah. Who is, you know, um, is uh, the, the haughty ranger in that chapter is bronze... You say Yon. I've always pronounced it Yon, like oh. John. Oh, interesting. But either way, it's fine. Uh, his bronze Yon's or Yon's Yon's third son. So. Yes, and uh, the haughty ranger, and also a haughty, according to Sansa. Um, yeah, not a... Oh, yeah, she does comment on his looks. Yes, she. Well, she like fell for him. Like, I mean, she's just a little girl, right? Yeah. But kind of fell for him hard when he came through. Yeah, Bronzion uh, and his family came up and they stayed at Winterfell either before or after. It must have been before if she saw Waymar. Probably both. Uh, to drop uh, Waymar off at the wall. Yeah, right. That'd be weird, right? To drop your kid off forever. Yes. Yep. Like taking him to the airport to send him off for a year or two. 
It would be weird. And and peace out. I don't remember whether we commented this in the, our very first episode of Davos Fingers or not about Waymar being there and how weird it is that he's there. But the Royces are a, a first men family. Um, mm-hmm. They kind of they seem to hold dear to uh, to some of those old customs, like sending sending you know later sons to the wall. They uh, and that was seen as an honor. Yeah, you know, back to, then. to them. Yeah, so, right. And mm-hmm. they, uh, but but a lot of families don't hold to that anymore. But but they yep. seem to. They also, if I remember right, they're. Um, I do remember right. Cat mentions it. Gosh, probably sometime in Game of Thrones about the heirs to uh, to the Stark line um, being being Royces, right? They've married yeah, through the being north. in the Erie. Yeah, yeah, they've married through the north in some way and are actually mm-hmm. somewhere in that line of succession. Yeah, there's some cousins who married someone or something. Blah 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 blah. But right. yeah. The Royces yep. are a cool family. They're a family I'd like to know more about. For sure. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I got too much more. Uh, let's see. Let me scan real quick. Sir Lynn sounds like a piece of work. Oh, one thing, just real quick. Uh, the theme we've we've seen before: men see what they expect to see, uh, which is something that that Peter says to Elaine. Uh, in this chapter, it's a, a theme we've had in this podcast. Arya with with the hound. The hound tells Arya the same thing. I think in the wagon on the way to the twins. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the whole Jane Pool thing coming up, um, mm-hmm. and uh, Elaine here, and also Varys's disguises. Right about how he can get away with these disguises just because men see what they what they want to see and what it's convenient to see. So just mm-hmm. a continuation of that theme here. Yep. Old uh, Royce expected to see a bastard daughter of Littlefinger, and it appears that's what he saw. Yeah, I mean, it took a little suggestion. He says, do I know you? Mm-hmm. Uh, but all it took is a little suggestion. He's like, okay, yeah, that's what I expect. That's what yeah. I would expect to see. Unless he's being sly and sneaky, and he really does recognize her. Could which be. I really don't expect. Yeah. I yeah. remember when I took my boy up to the wall. I remember that girl. No, he doesn't seem like the type. No. That do that but anyways yep last all right so uh yeah let's move on are young on the foot horse face sticking with the pointy end are young on the foot horse face sticking with the pointy end so every night as Arya goes to bed she continues to whisper the names of people she wants to die but in the house of black and white no whisper is too quiet the kindly old man yeah, that same one who turned his, his face turned into like a worm skull thing in the last Arya chapter. He's still there, and he continually reminds her to forget herself and her past. Death, he teaches, is not for her to decide, but for the many-faced god. It's the god they worship in the House of Black and White. He's kind of a conglomeration of all the gods to hear the uh, kindly old man tell it. Who are you? He asks Arya frequently. No one, she replies, knowing it's the correct answer, but only half believing it. And Arya is apparently not as good a liar as she thinks. She never gets one past the kindly old man who calmly declares that she lies. And Arya knows it. In her heart of hearts, she knows she is Arya Stark, daughter of Eddard and Catelyn, a child of the North. 
But until she is able to truly get past herself and become no one, she cannot become one of them from the house of black and white. The house, the kindly old man says, is not a home for orphans. Perfect obedience must be observed. And we know this is something that's never been Arya's uh, strong point. Um, but all of this is kind of routine, and, and Arya's life has turned rather routine. Uh, she's become accustomed to the daily rituals of the house of black and white. Every day there, people, worshippers, come to pray. Many light candles before, they go, before the god they wish to seek favor from, and a few drink from a black cup and then go off and fall to sleep never to wake up again. Basically a, a simple form of suicide. Um, even more, some come and ask for a priest and are taken down into the sanctum, the one of the only places in the House of Black and White where Arya is not allowed to go. Now, Arya's jobs are fairly janitorial in nature, sweeping, serving meals, sorting piles of dead men's clothing and possessions, uh, finding the bodies of those who drunk from the black cup, you know, normal janitorial stuff. Besides the sanctum, she is free run of the house of black and white, and even a comfy little cell to call her own. She's learning bravosi from the waif, a young girl living in proximity to her, and, uh, this young waif seems to have the ear of the kindly old man. In fact, it's shortly after the waif sees Arya practicing with Needle one night that the kindly old man approaches her with a task more difficult than she might have expected. He asks her to get rid of all her worldly personal possessions and commit herself fully to the many-faced gods. Uh, those who enter his service give up all that makes them who they are. He says, so Arya does it one night. She goes outside the temple and chucks all her stuff, which really at this point basically consists of a few knickknacks and trinkets into the water. Now that's everything except you guessed it needle. She can't bring herself to get rid of needle. She says, I love this quote. Needle was Rob and Brandon Ricken, her mother and her father, even Sansa. Needle was Winterfell's gray walls and the laughter of its people. Needle was the summer snows, old Nan's stories, the heart tree with its red leaves and scary face, the warm earthy smell of the glass gardens, the sound of the north wind rattling the shuttles of shutters of her room. Needle was Jon Snow's smile. He used to mess my hair and call me little sister, she remembered. Oh, that last one almost makes me cry. Um, and suddenly there were tears in her eyes too. So with that, she hides Needle away behind one of the steps leading up to the temple. She pulls out this stone of the step and sticks Needle back there and puts the stone back in place. And she uh, heads back inside confident that no one will be able to find it there. So uh, seemingly satisfied that she's on her way to forgetting herself, the old, the kindly old man reveals to her a high-level history of the Faceless Men, who are the secret guild of assassins that are headquartered in the House of Black and White. So their beginnings happen sometime during the height of the Valyrian Freehold, when a man, no one knows who, would hear the prayers of the slaves of the, of the Valyrians. And if those slaves prayed for release, he would grant it to them. So kind of this nice way of killing, murdering them. Um, from that moment, 
that this story is revealed to Arya, she is promoted to the position of novice. Uh, she continues learning her bravosi, as well as learning how to both detect and conceal a lie, even how to control her face down to the tiniest muscle. Things continue this way for a time until Arya is finally given a new assignment by the kindly old man. The assignment is this. She is to leave the house of black and white, report to a fisherman named Brusco, uh, and take an open position he had walking around Bravos and selling his mussels, cockles, and clams. She is to take on a new identity. She chooses that new identity to be Cat. Hmm. And uh, she's supposed to give this whole living a lie thing a try. It it doesn't sound like super fun work, but Arya, frankly, is chomping at the bit to get started. And that is the end of the chapter. She is chomping at the bit. It's kind of uh, it's kind of not the ending of the chapter that I that I expected. Right. Um, that she's uh, I can't remember literally crying with happiness or something. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, it's like yeah. really. It okay. doesn't sound like right. that fun of a job to me. Yeah, she's she's in a weird she's in a weird headspace. This girl, um, you know, I mean, there's there's all that stuff in there about like, what do you want? Do you want to go back to Westeros? Do you want mm-hmm. us to set you up as a wife to a you know a a merchant? Do you want to serve here? Do you want to become a prostitute? Like, kind of giving her all these options. She doesn't really know what she wants. Mm-hmm. She seems to be called to this, you know, this service, but she also seems called for the completely wrong reasons, <laughs> right? And right. so, so you, you know, your words, she's chomping at the bit to do what? To mm-hmm. sell clams? To, to 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 practice training? To 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 do what? I don't I don't know what she's. I don't know why she's happy. It scares <laughs> me. I. I think we've talked about this a long time ago. I only have faint whisperings of us of us talking about this, but I think one thing that Arya craves after how long over a year of just being on the run and fending for herself and constantly being on the defensive, right? I think what Arya craves is control. Yeah. Uh, in the sense of she wants to be able to control her own destiny. She wants to be able to control the situations that she is in. Do you know what I mean? Yep. And she she must see that in this house of black and white. And it's a long process, it sounds like. But, uh, you know, if she can have that ability to just make things happen like Jacquin. She constantly refers back to Jacquin and even Serio. Um, but she's missing the point though and then change her face and move on you know she wants to do that but she's missing the point though the whole point is you don't have any control over those things you're doing those things in service in accordance with rules and expectations for commands that are given you don't have control to just do this stuff when you want to yeah she wants her cake and she wants to eat it too right yeah she 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 wants to learn everything and she wants to become this faceless man, but she wants to still do it for her own reasons. And the kindly old man's like, you can't do that. You can't do that. And she's like, I know, I know. But 
it's ex- you're exactly right. She wants to do it for her. And and I'm kind of just I I remember being surprised by this the first time I read through this and I'm still I still can't I still can't put my finger on it. I don't understand why they're letting her continue because mm-hmm. they can clearly read her like a book. Yep. Like I mean they must get no recruits ever and so when somebody comes in the door they're like okay Got to give him as much leeway as we can to get him to stick around because she's clearly not a good candidate. They can see right through her, but they kind of keep letting her hang on despite the fact that they've got to be able to tell that she's doing this for her own reasons. I don't know. It's a weird thing, man. Or maybe, maybe she isn't that abnormal of a candidate. Maybe this is the normal way of doing things. Maybe they do have, it's a long game to get them to change their way of thinking. Yeah, maybe. To unlearn. I don't know. Maybe. But... Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I this The House of Black and White has, and, and the whole Faceless Men thing has sat poorly with me from the beginning. It's mm-hmm. a cult. I don't like mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it I, I feel... Again, this is not spoiling. I just feel like, in the end, this can't be good for Arya. Uh, you know, it's good for her in the short term. She's got a full belly, which she hasn't had in years. So, like, good for that. You know, only when you're only when you don't have to think about your base needs can you actually start figuring other things out about yourself. Mm-hmm. And so, good for that. But I don't know. I just. I can't, I can't, I can't imagine that they're just going to be like, okay, yeah, we taught you all this stuff and now you're going to go use it on your own and not like take retribution or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. They're investing time into her and and they, they imagine uh, they, they will probably expect a return. I like that you pointed out that they're, they're a cult and, and they're a money-making cult. Yeah. they say, yeah, he's like, it's all in the hands of the many-faced god. No, it's not. It's in the hands of the people who pay you to assassinate other people. Yeah, <laughs> like, you could you could give this whole this whole story about how you're just doing his will, but no, you're letting people pay you. And... Yeah, and somewhere somewhere in the history, it translated from this guy in the depths of the mining situation. Uh, uh-huh. listening to the many-faced god and and freeing these people from what sounds like an awful life to, oh yeah, we're contracted killers. Right. Like, that's Those are completely separate concepts. Mm-hmm. Now they still do offer, it seems, their complimentary suicide service. Yes. <laughs> uh, where you can come in and yes. take a yes. drink and, and go. But Sorry, that's not funny. I should be it's, laughing it's, at suicide services, but... It's really not, but... Um... Yeah, but, you know, that seems to be, uh, I don't know, maybe they have to pay a small fee to have a drink. It never says, though. No, but they do seem to, like, they they mentioned something about, like, they they take the coins from their pockets. That's true. It's almost maybe like it's an an unspoken thing, like, you know, don't hide away all your coins with your family before you show up or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, But, yeah, who knows? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see here. Um, 
this book is these books are are hard for me to read at times. I, I don't know. I'm just very sensitive to 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 death, particularly death of children and stuff, which this book does not shy away from. Um, and I like he, he he George gives us this little perspective line where the kindly old man says, "Death is not the worst thing. It is his gift to us, an end to want and pain." Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and I think that's an important perspective to keep that these people are living in a pretty crappy world right now. And, you know, for some finally getting a release from that and going to, you know, whatever you or they believe is the next portion, if there is a next portion to existence, uh, isn't, isn't maybe isn't the worst thing. So I try to keep that in mind when I get really sad about kids getting slaughtered by these terrible people and stuff but yeah yeah i mean uh you know most religions in our world i i, I don't know that i've thought too much about it in the the western the the planetist world you know don't look highly on suicide um mm-hmm. it's a sin um some you know i don't want to go too deep into this but um this is an example of a group that's like yeah man it's why live if you're suffering yeah. And um you know, it's it's almost a a more caring way to look at that than a caustic just deal with it and make your life better, pull up yourself by your bootstraps and figure it out. Um one hundred percent. Yeah. And so we don't know your problems. Yeah. We don't know what you're going through. We're not gonna tell you how to act or think. Yeah. Right. Just here's this flagon, drink. No um, questions asked, yep. Yeah. I, I, the, I like the way he put it too that that everyone has uh, this dark angel that kind of follows them about. It was uh, super interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. kind of a an interesting uh, way to look at that. But mm-hmm. uh, anyway, dark stuff. Dark yeah, stuff. indeed. To lighten it up a little bit, when she was uh, when she's practicing with her face muscles and everything yes. to to be able to conceal her lie. I thought back to the office, Dwight Schrute, how to detect a liar. I don't know if you remember that one. I know you've been watching office episodes here and there. Here and there, lately. yeah. But he's got one where he talks about how he's uh, trying to identify a liar who he's speaking with on the phone. And he's like, liars will often uh, touch their face. They will often fold their arms or their eyes will look from side to side as they're talking. And then he's like, of course, I was on the phone with this person, so all of this is irrelevant, but... (laughs) There are several different ways to tell if a perp is lying. The liar will avoid direct eye contact. The liar will cover part of his or her face with his hand, especially the mouth. The liar will perspire. Unfortunately, I spoke to Oscar on the phone, so none of this is useful. (laughs) I I was reminded of uh, again something we talked about in the pre-show, briefly. Uh, the name of the wind. Uh, one of the mm. things uh, that the main character in that in the in the Kingkiller Chronicle series is he comes from a troupe of actors, performers, um, musicians, uh, poets, um, and one of the things they learn is is to rule their face, to always be in control of what the face is telling people. And uh, mm-hmm. he goes throughout the story. I think there's a few times where he he notices a type of smile 
or a type of smirk or a type of look that someone else gives him and he like tucks it away for later and he says that that look meant this to people i need to teach my face to do that um kind of interesting stuff oh nice yeah king killer chronicles i've recommended it a bunch of times on here go read it guys it's really good got the book sitting on a bookshelf probably won't get to him till after this uh reread you'll get to it you'll get to it eventually uh, i'd love to um uh, how about uh how about something that i think maybe goes a little bit uh i don't know underappreciated in this chapter Arya is skin changing across the narrow sea with her wolf uh-huh it's a very brief passage it is mentioned. Uh, and I, do we have that anywhere else? Like a, a skin changing across that great of a distance? Well, no, because our only, our only, uh, she's our only example across the sea for skin sure. changers are across the sea. You know, yeah. even John, you know, was in relative close proximity to ghost. And we know the wall broke that or seemed to seems to have broken that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I just we talk. It's one of my. It's one of my kind of my, my in my bailiwick of like the the skin changing and which of the Starks is the most powerful. And it, it seems like it's Bran, but but also it seems like Rob had a lot of latent stuff. You don't get his POVs. You don't know. Arya may be just as strong as Bran. Had yeah, she, she just doesn't know how to control it. Had she had a full stomach the whole time mm-hmm. to be able to focus on it. Yep. Maybe. You know, maybe she could reach that level. She seems super powerful. Yep. She's doing it accidentally across an ocean. Yeah. Yeah. These, uh, it, I guess, skin changing. The signal is not dulled by distance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Or, yeah. or it isn't for her, at least. We, you know, we don't know. But. And also remembering that she hasn't seen Nymeria since Game of Thrones, Thrones. early part, early part of Game of Thrones. Yeah. And you know, so she hasn't built the connection with her direwolf, the physical connection that John has, that Bran has, that even uh, Rob had. Yeah. So it's it's very interesting to see that you know she's powerfully doing this uh, without realizing it. Yeah, I agree. Interesting. Yeah. Um, we get the you know again with the theme of remembering who you are. Um. The whole needle bit, which I think you covered nicely in the summary, um, you know, by she, she has that passage where she kind of says, "This isn't even a real sword. If I want a real sword, I can go get a real sword from the storeroom." Mm-hmm. Which, which downplaying that as a sword just really creates it as an object instead of a weapon, an yeah. object for memory and an object for, you know, a touchstone. Mm-hmm. Um. But 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 I was interested mostly on your uh your thoughts with respect to how she justifies keeping it that the old gods meant her to have it and this many-faced <laughs> god has nothing to do with that and so it's like a, a little a nice little uh polytheistic workaround she's she's got for herself oh yeah she's just telling her any story yeah herself any story yeah anything, keep it. anything she can do to keep it to yeah. justify it uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I mean like like I guess put another way like what would what would the the what would we call the guy the man 
What's his name? The kindly old the kindly, man. The kindly man. What would he say if she gave him that explanation? Yeah. I wonder. Nope. Yeah. Anthony Hopkins, as I call him. Oh, is that who you imagine? I got him as Anthony. Yeah. Anthony Hopkins. He's sufficiently creepy. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about with Arya? Let's see. We had the line of Sansa who had been her sister. Yes. Sansa who had been her sister. Just a little mm-hmm. sad little sad thing. At some point Arya's decided to write her off. Mm-hmm. Interesting in that same sentence she said the eldest, referring to the people who she was like roommates with pretty much. It says the eldest was her father's age. Mm-hmm. So she speaks of her father. Yeah. As if almost like he's still around. The eldest was her father's age. Mm-hmm. But then he says Sansa, who had been her sister. Mm-hmm. Like Sansa's already gone, isn't her family anymore. Yeah. That's interesting. But... It is. Uh, you, wonder about, you wonder about stuff like that, like what the writer intended you to think. Mm-hmm. If anything. Yeah, yeah. if anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that... Sansa and Arya never got along, but it seemed very, very just sisterly deep, you know? It was just they bickered because they were sisters, and sisters bicker. You know what I mean? Yes, and I feel like we've gotten perspective from both Sansa and Arya since they were separated mm-hmm. that said, like, oh, I'd love to see them again. You know, like, like yeah. they, they miss each other. They're They're not, you know, even Arya, who felt pretty betrayed by Sansa with the whole wolf thing, Mm-hmm. And the attack on the trident. Um, I think I feel like she's over that. I mean, yep. But yeah. all right, all right. Should we move on? Let's do it. Move on from Arya, who will always remember who she is. All right, we got Cersei next. Alluring eyes can get the guys with promises, lies, then cast aside. Can't she be the man she thinks her family needs? One brother she hates, with the other she mates. Those debts can she repay, Cersei Lannister. Ugh. Pouting Tommen is the worst. <laughs> but it's even more worst. When he was pouting because Marjorie was filling his head with nonsense, like sitting in the Iron Throne and attending his own council meetings. Cersei puts a stop to it, though, gives him some homework, and sends him on his way. She's going to keep him in line if it's the last thing she can do. Oh, that Marjorie. Cersei had waited half her life to be in power, and she planned to keep it up for as long as possible. She'd be damned if Marjorie was going to steal her rule away from her before she was good and ready. But at the same time, she kind of seems to hate ruling. Let's hear all about it, and what I call, yep, this is what a day in the crazy rule of Cersei looks like. She starts it off by complaining about the ledger report from Lord Giles, and about her, about the ever-failing Pycelle. But this time Pycelle did bring some good news with him. Davos is dead, with a head and finger-shortened hand to prove it. The phrase have confirmed it. It gets Cersei thinking, with our White Harbor in line, the Boltons ready to sweep the Ironborn away uh, from the north before being able to deal with Stannis. And Mace besieging Storm's End at the moment. Things are getting very close to wrapping up with this war. But she's not going to tell that to Noho Dimitis of the Iron Bank. The Iron Bank wants its due. But Cersei shoves him off rudely and dismissively, telling him they'll be paid when the war is in hand and over. Go talk to Lord Giles. This is his concern, not mine. 
Next, things we, we move on to the Osney Marjorie front. Things are not going as swimmingly as she hoped. Now, if you remember, she promised Osney a lordship and a ride on the Circe Mobile if he can complete two favors. Osney's trying to seduce and sleep with Marjorie as the first favor. She seems, Marjorie, receptive, according to Osmond, but she and Osney are never alone. There's always cousins or friends or guards or singers about. Seriously promises she'll get them alone at some point so he can do the deed. But then they're interrupted by chance in the yard. Someone is riding at the Quintain. Someone turned out to be Tommen. Oh, hell. Now she had to go engage and favor her young one with encouragement when this is the last thing she wants to be doing right now. Here's the thing, though. Tommen actually did quite well. Cracking the lance on the target as instructed, even earning accolades from Sir Loras, who encourages him to practice every day. Marjorie joins in too, everyone fawning all over him, and Circe just can't take it anymore, indicating that he will practice the lance more when he is older. Noting as well that she isn't surprised that his prowess for jousting is in his blood, his father once ruling the lists. That was a slip, and one Marjorie won't let slide. I never knew that King Robert was so accomplished at the joust. I'm sure his grace would love to hear stories about his father. Of course Circe had been thinking of Jamie, not Robert. He won the tourney on the trident, she improvises, referring to the Battle of the Trident. Well, he was a horse, I suppose, so good one, Circe. Loras also follows Circe at her request and answers for this sport of putting Tommen behind a lance. But he doesn't cower. Tommen should be a squire by now, he insists. He should be doing all these things daily, and with no master at arms, a job Loras eagerly volunteers for, there's no one to train him. Circe adds another thing to her list of shiz to do and sends Loras on his way. Where is she going to find a master at arms? Next, she finds Lord Kyburn waiting for her. He shares all sorts of news about Essos that we all know already that Circe doesn't seem to care about at all. But she does find one bit interesting. Silva Spotswood, heir to Spotswood, has been married off to 70-year-old Lord Estermont. Mostly, though, this just reminds her of her own trip to Estermont when she confirmed that Robert was cheating on her with a cousin and decided to cuckold Robert in return, conceiving Joffrey sometime during their two-week stay in Estermont. Later, Cersei finally unwinding in the bath after a long day of ruling, Jaime storms in with Tommen. The young king demands to joust on the morrow and be trained every day, and he wants Loras to do it. Also, he wants a kitten. Also, no more beats. Jamie can't help but laugh at the whole thing, and this reader can't help but be a little happy for Jamie, finally <laughs> getting a joyful moment with one of his children. Circe challenges Tommen, wins on the jousting component, but has to promise Tommen a kitten in the exchange. Before they leave, Jamie provides Circe with an update on the walls. A few gates need replacing, but the walls are fine. Circe's panicking over nothing. However, he reminds her, the Tyrells are inside the walls already. In the same breath, though, of warning about the Tyrells, he fights for Loras to be master at arms. Hard. Not taking her rebuffs, he really thinks Loras should do it. He's kind of treating Loras like a knight of the King's Garden, not like a Tyrell. Interesting. Kind of maybe like he'd like to be treated. She's had all she can stomach from Jamie, even admitting to herself that she must soon be rid of him. She dismisses him, but not before teasing him with a nice labia shot. He leaves, but not before remarking about what a fool she has become. It's a very contentious relationship they've got these days. 
Next is dinner with the Stokeworths. Lady Stokeworth, the uh, ruler of the Stokeworth estate, broke her hip when her saddle broke. Lord Giles Ward refused them hospitality on the road to King's Landing, and they were pestered all the way down by lice-ridden, unwashed sparrows on the road. They are also quick to mention that they recommended against naming lawless bastard Tyrion. So that's the quick update from the Stokeworths. But Cersei uses this encounter for something different. In fact, it's likely the entire reason that dinner was arranged. To plead for help from the Stokeworths. Indeed, she entreats Sir Balman, a noted jouster in his heyday, to make sure that Bronn suffers a mortal mishap. Then we get a memory from Cersei. Something beautiful. On her way back from checking on Tommen, and his three new black kittens, not just one, courtesy of Marjorie, she recalls the turning of Lannisport. How happy she was, how beautiful Rhaegar was, and how excited she was too because at the close of the tourney it was to be announced that she and Rhaegar were to be engaged. But in the end Ares refused the match in an elitist manner, calling Tywin his servant and saying that you don't marry your heir to your servant's daughter. Tywin could not arrange anything suitable until Robert Baratheon came along and we all know how that worked out for Cersei. She had never forgiven Robert for killing Rhaegar on the Trident. And she wouldn't forget Bronn's sins either. Thus, the Stokeworths going after him. And that's the end of the chapter. Bronn just getting it done. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> He's cutting saddles open. Names his kid Tyrion. That's not even his kid. Yeah. It's so great. Yeah. I love him. I love him so much. Do you think, do you think Cersei really fears Bronn? Or is she just still just got such a hard-on for for Tyrion that she just wants to punish Bronn just for the relationship he had with him. Yeah, I th- I think it's mostly that. I think she knows that Bronn is dangerous. Yeah. But, but yeah, I think, you know, it's maybe 25% that, 75% he's Tyrion's friend. Yeah. She's it's just it's so funny. We talked about this in the last Cersei chapter too, how she's so focused on Tyrion yep. that she's missing the big picture of yes. everything. Like and... everything happening in Essos? Right, yeah. yeah. Eh, no big deal. Yeah. Um here's a we always complain about not really knowing what the Kingsguard really does and all their ambiguous rules and stuff like that. That's one of my pet peeves. I've tried to let it go recently, but yes. We just can't. It's it's something and yeah, you've definitely been the flag bearer for this. Um and that's not a bad thing. Sir Osney is named to be Tommen's sworn shield. Yep. Isn't that what the Kingsguard do? Aren't they the sworn shields? Well, yeah, but Joffrey had one too, right? But Joffrey Sandor the was. Hound. But he was made. Sandor was given a white cloak when Joffrey became king. Oh yeah, I suppose that's true. Yeah, I just don't get it. Like, <laughs> you've already got seven of those. Why does Osby yeah. need to be named a sworn shield? Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, the reason is so that Osney can sleep with Marjorie. Sure, sure. <laughs> Cersei's making up positions now. Yeah, yeah. But you wonder if, like, if like the Kingsguard guys are like, wait a second. Yeah. Hey, that's what we do. <laughs> Could you step away from the king, please? Oh, uh, I'm his sworn shield. Well, I'm the Kingsguard, and I have to protect him from you. 
Right. <laughs> yeah. Someone like Boris Blunt probably doesn't care. He's like, yeah, you can do my job. Do whatever yeah, you want. Right. Yeah. <sighs> but. So, yeah. uh, can I ask you about the Silva Spotswood news? Yeah. You want to give a little uh, reminder as to who she is? Well, we just, hopefully the readers, the listeners don't need much of a reminder. I think it was the last episode. It um, was. Where we had the Queenmaker chapter, where Silva was mm-hmm. part of the conspiracy with Ariane. Um, yes, one of her buddies, one of her goonies. One of, yeah, one of her, one of the people on horseback trying to help him out. Uh, she's the heir to Spotswood. Uh mm-hmm. And I didn't remember this. I didn't remember this bit. Um, but after the plot is foiled, it seems like shortly thereafter she's sent off, married off, and I don't, I don't know the reason unless it's just to remove Ariane's allies. I, I we're not given a very good reason, so yeah, it's down to speculation. Yeah. My speculation would be that these. Ariane's allies are are in trouble. They're being right? punished. There's especially with a member of the Kingsguard dying, there's going to have there's going to be repercussions. And I think uh and this could be completely wrong. I think Silva getting quickly married off to someone in another house is um her father's way. It is her father, right, who's still alive? Yes. It's not so. an uncle or anything. It's her father. Her father's way of sidestepping the trouble she could get in, perhaps. Mm. Maybe she could be saved from being imprisoned or something if she's married off to some lord. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Married Inter- off real quick Interesting who's, who he's chosen. It's not somebody from Dorne. Estermont is, is part of the, the uh, Stormlands, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but not a very powerful house. No, no, not a very powerful house. Which, which, which led me to believe that he's looking. He needs a wife. He wants a wife. Yeah, this can happen quickly. But, but I still would think that. I still would think that we've forgotten his name. The whoever the ruler of Spotswood is currently would have like run this by Doran. Like, all right, what do you what do you want me to do with her? Yeah. Like don't don't Maybe. put her in jail, but like okay, you want me to go make a, an alliance with somebody somewhere? I'll do that to punish her. What do you want to do? Mm-hmm. Maybe or maybe not. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, let's see. <laughs> best best line of the uh, whole chapter. Cersei's washerwoman had shrunk several of her gowns. <laughs> She hates Robert a lot, but she's a lot like him. <laughs> okay, Cersei. Yeah. Okay, bud. Yeah. But on a more serious note, the lack of accountability Ugh. among the nobility is just sickening, isn't it? Yeah, you've generalized it. I was going to say on Cersei's behalf specifically, but maybe it's all of them. Well, yeah, that one is specific. So I think, I mean, it's not stated for certain, but what I'm inferring from this, and I believe you are as well, is that her gowns are not being shrunk, but that Cersei is gaining a little weight. Yes, absolutely. Um, But yet, just because she thinks that, she gets to dock her washerwomen's pay. Yes. Just because she thinks that. 
um, the stable boy of the Stokeworths gets punished when Tanda falls off her horse because it was obviously his fault that her saddle wasn't on correctly. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, we have the whole whipping boy scenario, which isn't unique to a song of ice and fire. It's, you know, we've got stories about whipping yep. boys. What's the thing? Pate, Tommen's little Pate who gets to get his uh, little butt kicked whenever Tommen acts up. How about that? So Pate is Joffrey's whipping boy. Joffrey bites it. And Pate's probably thinking, I'm free. No, I'm no, 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 no. Nope. nope. You get to now stick with Tommen. That sucks. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, I know that was a thing before, but just that lack of accountability is it's no wonder these people are so stuck up and jerky. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, those Tyrells are uh, pretty clever. Never leaving Marjorie alone. Yeah. And she's, they know what they're doing, right? It seems like it. She's a little flirt, though. But do you think she's like i think she's trained i think she's playing along i was gonna ask you if you thought that is uh well i don't know but i think so mm-hmm. is aria playing them right back are uh marjorie you mean marjorie excuse me i don't know where aria came from because the letters for aria are within Mar- the marjorie name probably oh there you go yeah uh I think she probably is. I think she's probably encouraging it, uh, playing along, trying to keep the game going. Um, I I don't know, I don't know that she needs all the constant attention, but it's a nice little uh, additional shield, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I don't think she would let her emotions or, I don't know. It seems it seems like she's she's ruling her faculties. I don't I don't think she's. I don't think she would be seduced by by someone of by the Osney. ilk of Osney Kettleblack. Yeah, <laughs> the bros. She's got a little higher standard. Yeah, she doesn't need Osney's popped collar and yeah. weekend campfires. <laughs> yeah. uh, Bonfires, excuse me, not campfires. With, of course, Sublime blaring out the car radio. Uh, let's see here. Um, I, I guess I'd say, too, though, on the, the Cersei Marjorie front, Cersei mm-hmm. isn't crazy. Marjorie is totally trying to steal Tom in a way. Absolutely. In everything she does. So, like, as, as much as shit as I give Cersei, like, she's not insane. There are people out to get her. And out to shorten her rule, and like, yep. she's just grasping. But I, I guess, I guess it just feels like she could go about it a different way. Like the, the people seem to love Tommen, and you know, I know he just kind of he's the king, so you kind of suck up to him a little bit. But he's like a good-natured kid. The people seem to like really love him. Like, what if she just embraced that rather than hiding from it and trying to minimize it? Absolutely, she would. She would be the cool mom. Yeah, you know? right. Like, yep. And she would get a lot of credit, I think, if she would just yeah, exactly embrace it. Yep. But you're right, and you wonder. Well, to me, I don't wonder too much. Um, 
I think Marjorie's not a villain. She doesn't come off as a villain to me, although I don't know enough about her. We don't have her POV or we really don't know too much about her other than what we see from a couple different POVs, most of them being Cersei's. Um, but you have to wonder what, why she's doing this for Tommen. Is it just because he's her little husband and she wants him to be the best Tommen that he can be? Or is it to advance Tyrell interests? Yeah, well, so I'd go back to Joffrey. So we had the the Sansa-Elena chapters where Sansa kind of lets on, you know, that Joffrey's like a monster, right? Mm-hmm. And I think if I, if I remember right, there's like a little knowing look that Elena and Marjorie share or something yep. um, when, when that's revealed. And mm-hmm. it, it kind of cued me into the fact that like Marjorie's in on all of this. She yep. knows the score. They remove Joffrey because he's going to be a terrible, a terrible companion. Mm-hmm. I think. I don't. I don't. I don't know that they're trying to remove Tommen or do anything other than create a legitimate king. And I, I the, like we they, have that they can be attached to. Yeah, like uh, you know, removing Joffrey screams like you know political interference but like they're kind of just protecting their daughter yeah he was a monster from a monster and now maybe it's just for sure they want to advance tyrell interests but it doesn't doing that doesn't have to necessarily be through like evil mechanistic ways like it could just be like yeah let's turn this tommen kid around like let's let's make him into a good king and then marjorie can you know, we can It'll be in the royal blood, too. and it'll be good for yeah. us and good for the realm and everything. Yep. I, I don't know that we have a ton of evidence that, that the Tyrells are, like, evil. You yep. know? I, I agree with you. So we're in agreement on this. I, I do think that, again, to basically repeat what you said, that they're, they do want to advance Tyrell interests. And who wouldn't, you know? Sure. Why not? Uh, but there's nothing malicious about their, or or sly overly sly about their treatment of Tommen, you know? I mean, it, it's, it certainly is, uh, perceived that way by Cersei. It's prying him away from her. Of course. And so I get yep. why she perceives it that way. And there probably is a little bit of a, you know, that competitive nature to it. Like they know what they're doing in trying to pry him away from Cersei, um, mm-hmm. because they think she's a bad influence, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that it's, toward Tommen, a malicious thing. Yeah. Sure. Yep. Um, I think maybe the only other thing that I'd want to discuss with you is the interesting wrinkle we get into Cersei's personality, and it seems like we get a new one or two with every chapter, and that's what makes these chapters still fascinating, is that the Rhaegar situation. Mm-hmm. And how she had she had never forgiven Robert for killing him. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a very interesting line. Yeah, it was Robert's rebellion that got her to the position she'd always wanted mm-hmm. of being a queen, which it looked like that wouldn't have happened had Robert's rebellion not started. Right, the the marriage between Cersei and Rhaegar was off. Um. But so that's interesting that she got what she wanted. She was the queen with Robert, yet she was never able to forgive him for killing Rhaegar. Yeah, it, it almost um, it implies one of two things, or maybe some of both. 
um, misdirected anger at a target that she's grown to hate anyway, Mm -hmm. being Robert, Mm -hmm. or legitimate, actual infatuation, or if you want to be generous, real love Love. for Rhaegar that that, that she actually had that, that would have put uh that would have put her you know her own needs kind of behind his maybe and uh, been a real thing for her Mm -hmm. i i don't know that i buy it i've got a have got a whole note about this thing too that's uh kind of down a similar vein um but what what, i mean what do you think about it i think everything i've said that it's just interesting to me i don't know that i draw any conclusions from it I just find it another interesting look into Cersei's personality. To me, it's... That... So So people say this all the time about Triple B, that he says all the time, like, oh, if I had just had Lyanna, things would have been different. And, and people mm-hmm. always say, no, that's bullshit. That's bullshit. You'd have ended up being the same asshole you ended up being. And mm-hmm. I can't I can't argue with him that necessarily. You don't know for sure. I like to think that he would have changed his ways and been a different type of ruler or a different type of man had that gone the way he wanted it to. But people you never say... never know what the, yeah, the example, what the influence of a right. good partner can have on you. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But people say, like, that's just a, that's just a retroactive excuse that he mm-hmm. uses to justify his bad actions. And mm-hmm. I think this is more of the same from Cersei. Mm-hmm. The way Rhaegar died yeah. is an easy excuse for her to latch on to. Like, if it had just gone a different way, everything mm-hmm. would have been easier. And that makes it easy for me to make a fuck-up of my life because I have this built-in excuse. Mm-hmm. I think, I posit that, similar with Triple B, the, or similar to what people say about Triple B, at least, had she ended up with Rhaegar, she still would have thirsted for power, she would have struggled with Rhaegar's need for multiple wives and with his melancholy and all this other crap, and she would have still probably done the stuff with Jamie, and she would have been unhappy and a ruthless, uncaring bitch anyway, because that's who she is. I don't think Rhaegar was going to change that. Now, I sound like a hypocrite because of the way I feel about Robert, and like you said, you don't know what a, a good partner can do for you. Um, but to me, Cersei is who she is. And having Rhaegar wouldn't have changed that. Yeah, I tend to agree. But who knows? Who knows? Interesting that the uh, two people that they were obsessed with were obsessed with each other. (laughs) Cersei and Rhaegar. Yeah. Robert and Lyanna. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Yeah. Sticky situation. Yeah. Okay. Well, should uh, should we go to Reek? Uh, yep. Uh, let's see. Yeah, let's do it. So, Reek. His daddy lost a war, so he's living in the north. Now he's almost stuck between being a kraken and a wolf. Is the young Greyjoy. With a smile so sly, put an arrow through your eye. Is the young Greyjoy. Make a lady scream and a wonder be a king. Is the young Greyjoy. Loyalty speaks, but there's something there that rigs. Is the young Rejoice. Bathed and dressed to the nines. Okay, maybe like the fives. <laughs> and a horse. And bearing a banner of peace, Reek rides south from Ramsey's camp to Moat Kaylin, trying to push away memories of riding the same way with Rob Stark back when he was a different man. 
Ramsey had promised him a place among his dogs and meat every day uh, if he succeeded in his task, which, spoiler alert, is to convince the remaining Ironborn station there to surrender so that Roose Bolton, who is south of the Neck, can pass through and return to the north. So broken at this point that he barely entertains the notion of running away, Reek approaches by the only passable road, the causeway, which is littered with corpses in various forms of decay and grotesqueness. Uh, at the gate, he is mildly challenged by the ironborn guards left by Victarion Greyjoy, but then hustled inside when the bogmen begin shooting their poisoned arrows at him from the swamp. Inside, he tells the ironborn guard that he is Lord Balon's son, which feels like a lie to tell it, and says he was sent by Ramsay Bolton to treat with them. It becomes clear that the few remaining ironborn in the fort are rotting away, gradually succumbing to disease, malnutrition, and even despair. They've even given up on burying their dead, leaving them to rot where they lie. Uh, Reek, figuring the remaining garrison would be small, never imagined it would be this small, not to mention so emaciated. Um, by all accounts, Moat Kaelin has already fallen. The guard takes him to their commander, Ralph. And we've got to say his last name, Kenning, as Ralph is apparently the equivalent of John to the Ironborn. Everyone is named Ralph, um, who is all but dead from an infected arrow wound. Reek orders the guard to mercy kill Ralph, at Ralph and then ends up doing it himself um, in one of the most like grossest instances of the books. Pus and blood and grossness uh, and after doing the deed he has the guard take him to the hall where two dozen of the remaining skeleton crew are just sitting there drinking um he tells them he brings them an offer of safe passage home if they surrender moat Kaelin to lord ramsay one of the men dagon cod declares that iron men do not surrender and that victorian had told them to hold until his return Reek tells them that Euron is king, not Victarion, and Euron's never coming back for them, and neither is Victarion. Dagon calls him a liar in a turncloak and is about to attack him when uh, he takes a throwing axe to the forehead from one of the other men. <laughs> Gotta love the Ironborn. Those guys. Uh, Dagon apparently was in the minority, in his opinion. Uh, hungry and without means to fight, these men are ready to peace out. GTFO, can't blame them. Reek realizes he is one and returns to Lord Ramsay with the remaining 58 Ironborn who are still able to travel. Ramsay greets them, praising them for their stalwart defense, and sends them off to eat to their heart's content. He kisses Reek and offers to send him back to the Iron Islands with the others, but Reek senses the trap in the offer and answers that he is Ramsay's Reek and wants only to serve him. And maybe if he could spare some wine, Reek would take that too. Ramsay laughs and says he will make Reek one of his dogs. A high honor. He orders a collar made for Reek and sends him to sleep with the hounds, giving him chicken, sour wine, and uh, an old ratty blanket. Reek drinks himself into a stupor, only briefly woken by the sounds of screams coming from the camp. He wakes the next morning 
to see that Ramsey had had all of the Ironborn impaled on pikes along the road. They gone. Uh, not surprising, though, coming from Ramsey. Um, three days later, and with the causeway open, Roos Bolton's forces arrive from the south. Collared and chained again, Reek rides with Ramsey to greet his father. Roos greets Ramsey about as warmly as Boltons can greet one another, and then produces the two women traveling with him. Lady Walda Frey, Roos's new wife, uh, daughter of Walder Frey, and the other woman is or should we say gal, is Ramsey's new betrothed, Arya Stark. <gasps> bum, bum, bum. But Reek sees her, and he knows pretty instantly that the girl is not Arya Stark at all, but Sansa's old companion, Jane Poole. Remember her? We're going to talk about her. Lord Ramsey, the girl dipped down before him. That was wrong as well. Uh, I'm quoting from the chapter now. The real Arya Stark would have spat into his face, Reek thinks. Then Jane says, I pray that I will make you a good wife and give you strong sons to follow after you. That you will, promised Ramsay. And I can just imagine the gross look in his eyes. Uh, and soon, he says, to end the chapter. Oh, Jane. Oh, Jane. Is anyone in more of a precarious position? As the fiance of Ramsey Bolton. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very few. So, um, you want a quick recap of, of Jane? Um, we haven't heard from her in a while, right? Is it a cock last time we saw her? Uh, yeah, I think she's in one of those breakfast scenes or something. I can't remember. She's, uh, I think Jamie's attorney. Jamie sees her being taken out of the city. If I remember right, okay. by Steel Shanks Walton, uh, that would have been Storm of Swords. Um, I don't know if it specifically said it's her though. Um, anyways, yeah. Uh, Point is, this is back. this is the girl that Litterfinger found, right? To yes, pass off as Arya. Right. Um, he kept her. He kept her after all of Ned and all the all of his group that had gone to King's Landing had all been killed, including Jane's father. Mm-hmm. Um, he kept her almost as just kind of keeping her in his back pocket in case he needed her. And it's implied that she was kept at one of his brothels, right? right. Which we can infer from that is that maybe she, you know, there's some, some trafficking going on there. Yeah. Uh, and now oh, here she is again. There she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, what a journey for her. I mean, geez. <laughs> I mean, uh, her father, I think his name was Vayon uh, Poole, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. was, I don't know, one of Ned's go-to guys for running the household, I think. Yep. Um, you know, best friend of... Uh, Sansa. Sansa, and you know living a reasonably gentle life and you know a victim of the war itself thrown likely into prostitution then a hard road north with uh probably being kept a secret by Roose Bolton the whole time mm-hmm. uh, and kept away from the other northerners uh and now 
just being handed off for what is certain to be at the very least mental torment um, and likely physical as well. Awful, awful, awful road for her. Yeah. And you have to wonder, you know, just the situation of the North, you'd think these guys are going to know that that's not Eddard Stark's daughter. That's not Arya Stark's daughter or that's not Arya Stark. But, you know, with the condition of the North right now, I don't know that anyone dares or is in any, any position to challenge Roose Bolton of that or Ramsey. You, and you see what you want to see, right? Like we just talked about in the Elaine chapter. Um, Very true. Yeah. You're More of remember who you you're are. told yeah. what it is and um, the easiest path, the path of least resistance is to agree and say, okay, even if you've got some niggling doubts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, Ramsey's boy. such a dick. Uh, the mer- a... His, his version of mercy to these ironborn that have given themselves up. Mm-hmm. What a jerk. But you knew you knew he wasn't going to send them back to the Iron Islands. No, yeah, you knew it, but I don't know. And just the way he's broken Reek, it's it's tragic, but effective. Man, he's got Reek in his back pocket. Yeah. But, um, oh, I can't believe I'm doing this, but one thing I, I liked that the show did, uh, they, I think they just wanted to show how much reek was really in the pocket of Ramsey, but mm-hmm. you can't, you don't have the POV thoughts right mm-hmm. in the television show. So there's a scene where he or Ramsey, um, hands reek or Theon a blade, a shaving blade, a razor and has, um, and has Theon shave him, give him a shave, you know, could have slit his throat at any second. Mm-hmm. And Theon doesn't, and I thought that was a really effective way mm-hmm. of portraying on screen. It is just how much, just how much he had him in his back pocket. Not nowhere will not find that in the books anywhere, but uh, you know that was something that uh, they did well, I think. But um, but yeah, he doesn't even think of running away or anything. Yeah, and he does, uh, and he does a good job in his office too. Um, right, he, he makes gets a in convincing there, convincing case for being Theon and. Plays it up and shows, you know, no remorse in killing Ralph and mm-hmm. steps up and insults these people, treats them like the left behind dogs they are to try to get them to agree to his deal. Right. He's, uh, he's done a great job here for a broken person. I mean, pretty right. impressive. I mean, on one hand, it's lucky that they were pretty broken at this point, yeah, too. Right. Um, you have to think if they were in a more hardy situation, maybe they would have put up a little bit more of a. A yeah. fight with him, but yeah, I was proud of him for stepping up. And yeah, getting the job done. I mean, proud of him. It's not like he <laughs> went out, and <laughs> did some Good wonderful, deed. yeah, <laughs> yeah, wonderful thing. But yeah. yeah, he needed a win. He just needed a win. <laughs> uh, real quick, there's a mention of four thousand return out of the twenty thousand that went down south with Rob. It's uh, mm. not a very good number. Uh, most of them most Bolton. Most of them Boltons, it appears. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you get some stuff with uh, with Roos himself, uh, Theon, now in you know a much more cowed position 
realizes that this is no man to jape with. <laughs> and yet remembers japing with him a lot. Uh, what do you think about what do you think about Roos? I think he's not someone I would jape with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'm just a wuss, but uh, he seems like the type of guy that would just not make me feel good. Comfortable. Like, yeah. if I was walking towards him, I would, like, try to find an excuse to turn around and start walking the other way. Lower your you know head, I mean? don't make eye contact, yep. give him a wide berth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure, but he he doesn't seem particularly dangerous in the sense that he would all of a sudden lash out and cut my throat. That would be Ramsey. No, yeah. it wouldn't be Ramsey. Ramsey would play with me. Um. Uh, but he just would no, still give very, me the willies. He's very controlled. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you got anything else here? I don't have a ton in this chapter. It was the shortest chapter of our yeah. of our uh, group this week or this episode, and it's been almost sixty episodes. And I still say this week all the time. <laughs> we do an episode every three weeks, uh, but yeah. I would just say then, uh, lastly, thematically, um, when the lights are on, Theon hmm. also did not forget who he was. Right, he could turn Remember the Ironborn was, back yeah. on, which is interesting. Yeah, considering what he's been through, that's that's actually quite a feat that yes. should be understated that yeah. he was able to to turn that back on. Yeah, right. I agree. All right, well, shall we move to Davos After Dark? Yes, let's do it. All right, everybody, this is your cue. Thanks for joining us. If uh, you don't want to enter the realm, blah, 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 blah. Thanks for joining us. If you don't want to enter the realm of spoilers... Jump off now. This is your warning. You'll hear Matt's musical jingle here in a moment. Uh, but uh, join us uh, in three weeks. We'll continue on with our Feast with Dragons episode, uh, episode 60. Um, and uh, now it's time for Davos After Dark. Yeah, baby. Davos After Dark. All right. Let's start with... Let's start with... The crazy cult <laughs> of the faceless men. Mm. What what's their long game in this series? Or or do you think really all they are is a a plot device for Arya, the springboard for her? Yeah, we talked in the end. Uh, that in the end, not everyone's going to have their dramatic ending, yep. right? People are going to have to die. Some groups are just going to have to end up being kind of springboards to get some of these main characters to where they need to be. Yep. And I kind of feel it's that way with the faceless men. Um, just because, uh, I don't know, from a narrative standpoint, it would be kind of a letdown <laughs> to have so these guys like who are introduced and then they'll become, suddenly become this major thing. Well, they've already uh, been a pretty major component to this story. I mean, major arcs driven by the actions of the characters. By um, Arya and soon to be probably Sam in Old Town. 
Well, and, jo- and Jockin, um already, you know, f- f- uh, helping free the Northmen and set the whole Harrenhal thing mm-hmm. uh, going. and They're actually orchestrating quite a bit, aren't they? Yeah. Mm. And who knows what, yeah, what, what Jockin's game is at, uh, at Old Town, so... Balon Greyjoy's death. Balon Greyjoy's death as well, yep. Um, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I, I assume that he's the the Jockin who's pretended to be Pate at this point in Old Town. Is it Pate? Yes. That he'll have some role to play with the candles or, I don't know, something with Marwyn the Mage or something. But uh, we don't know what. There's mentioned there's a book in Old Town called The Death of Dragons, Death of the Dragons. And I think uh, one of the popular theories out there is that he's after that in an effort to, but, you know. But why? There's the question of why. If their goal Mm. really is to be this murder cult, this death cult, what do they care about dragons? Right. Well, the simple but I don't think satisfying answer is that we find out in the Arya chapter that they've always had kind of a thing against Valerians, right? Mm-hmm. And dragons are connected to Valerians. Now, if if that could have lasted, you know, the thousands of years that we're talking here, or hundreds of years, whatever it is, uh, that hatred to the point that their whole point is to kill off Valerians, I don't know. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I, I mean, at some point, these aren't enough? even... These aren't even the ancestors of the people in the mines, right? Like, right. Yeah. they don't have a huge beef with them anymore. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I've, I don't know. It's just interesting. I, I guess the only thing that makes me think they've got that whole, the what, the, the chairs made of weirwood or a door of weirwood mm-hmm. that... Somehow, the house of black and white, yeah. Yeah, maybe somehow Bran will be able to see through that in Ciaria or... I right. don't know. I don't know. It'd be interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, maybe we've maybe we've beaten that one to death. Let's move on. Uh, let's play the fun what if game, which I think I already revealed part of my answer. Yeah, uh, I, we've kind of already talked about it. Maybe Cersei but... <laughs> Rhaegar. What do you think? Let's see. We'd have two powerful houses marrying up, both alike in dign- dignity. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um. It all, again, I mean, the hinge of most of this story is Rhaegar and Lyanna Stark, right? So the question is, is if if Rhaegar and Lyanna would have meaten up, met up. Right, which Cersei, that's that's part of the Cersei story, right? Is like, he'd have been happy with me. He would have never cared about mm-hmm. the wolf girl. Mm-hmm. None of it would have happened. The whole, yeah, the whole frame tree of thing, none of been. it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But 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 Cersei doesn't know when she says that about mm-hmm. Rhaegar's thirst for knowledge and whatever it is he read that convinced him that he needed a second wife and that he needed right. more more heads of the dragon or you know whatever it mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know any of that information. Yeah, and if Lyanna was just someone he fell for, or if there was something more to him, needing northern blood, know, or exactly. Yeah, right now we're getting into a little bit of Team John here. But uh, we are, yeah, we could be potentially. Ooh. Yeah, it's the idea that if he knew that he needed something from, like you said, that northern blood or the blood of the first men or something like that, mm-hmm. in order to ah, achieve, 
where you're going. He was needing, yeah. But I don't yeah, know. I mean, um, it is an interesting choice that Ares made uh, with Elia instead of Cersei. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, the Westerlands, for, for, for all of this talk about Tywin being his servant, if you stand back and look objectively, the Westerlands are richer than Dorne, probably more powerful than Dorne. Um, you know, seems like Cersei would have been a good match. It's almost like there's more that happened than is let, that has been let on. Right. Did he purposefully choose Aaliyah Martell knowing that it would be an insult to Tywin? Right? I don't know. And, and or... Yeah, they outline this, I think, in the world book about how Tywin and Ares kind of grew apart. Oh, yeah. I don't remember all the details as to when and how that happened, whether this mm-hmm. was the start of that or the end of it. it. I think it was kind of in the middle. I think the, the well, at least the momentous, more visible start to it was naming Jamie to the Kingsguard. Right, but I think uh, that happened at the same time, didn't it? Just about, yeah. right. And, uh, well... No, because Rhaegar was already married to Aaliyah, right? Yeah. A little fuzzy on timeline here. But, yeah, things were not well. But uh, Ares already had a Martell in his Kingsguard, like uh, Lewin Martell was there. So, you know, there's already a connection. Like, yeah, I don't know what it, it got him advantageously by setting... Uh, Rhaegar up with a Martell. Here's so, the sentence that the had. Here's here's the sentence that had me thinking that they had happened at the same time. Mm-hmm. It had to have been the madness that led Ares to refuse Lord Tywin's daughter and take his son in. Take his son, yeah. Whilst marrying his own son to a feeble Dornish princess. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean it happened right at the same time. Um, but close yep. maybe. Anyway, okay. Uh, well, let's move on then. Uh, Ooh, I think I'm just getting my tourneys mixed up. I'm sorry. I'm still just thinking through this, and I hate getting caught with uh, with my pants down, as it were. Jamie was named at the tourney of Lannisport, I think, or thereabouts. Which is the one that Cersei's referring to. And then... Yeah, Kingsland. Yeah. Anyways, you know what? Doesn't matter. I thought he was. I thought he was given his cloak. Tourney of Harrenhal. At Harrenhal. Harrenhal. And yep. then sent back, right? Because it was going to be a big moment for him. They cheer his name, but instead mm-hmm. they give him his cloak and send him back. Yep. It was Harrenhal. Right. Mm-hmm. Have to look those dates up and see. Sorry, guys. Sometimes we don't. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Sometimes we forget. <laughs> uh, Roos. Roos Bolton. <laughs> the vampire theory. The Bolton theory. Here we go. So hey, I think I think you've wanted to talk about this for a while now. Well, it's just, we just fun. haven't gotten to it. And I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it justice. I mean, I went and looked, and there's so much out uh, variations on this. But mm-hmm. if you don't know. Guys, just go Google this. Go Google bolt on theory, bolt dash on theory, or Roos is a vampire, or you know whatever. Yeah, you can find tons of stuff. all sorts of stuff. 
there are variations of this. One of them is, you know, that that he is the offspring of of the Night's King, uh, and his uh, and his other bride or or conquest, um, and that there's only been one one Bolton Lord ever, and that he keeps like skin changing into younger mm-hmm. faces and stuff, like using mm-hmm. faceless men technology kind of thing to to change faces, and that those those cool gray eyes. Uh, the light blue chip eyes are just kind of the the one thing that always remains. Mm-hmm. Um, they they go into like, well, you know, we've already got werewolves, we've got dragons, we've got zombies, we've got all these kind of horror elements. Vampires are missing, and mm-hmm. the Boltons and the Starks always are butting heads, and, you know, vampires butt heads with werewolves, which is not... That's kind of a, a later thing in those myths. Uh, that's not like... In the original myths, vampires had nothing to do with werewolves. Um, but in, you know, later myths, those things, they've kind of butted heads, those cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, but if the Starks are kind of wargs and wolves, then, you know, the, the, the Boltons maybe are vampires. But, you know, there's, there's so much out there on it. It's just kind of fun stuff, but it's kind of surprising the number of people that kind of buy into it as possible because I think it's partially just due to a lack of information about the Boltons. <laughs> We've said mm-hmm. this before, how like the Boltons never marry into the Starks. They're never given like positions of power or authority. Um, we don't hear much about their leaders or anything. Um, and then what you get from Roos is pale leeches his blood all the time, which we've seen with cold hands the blood will congeal and fall down to your your limbs if you're if he's not leaching it. So you're leaching it out. So you're yep. leaching it out so you don't get that effect. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't. There's there's a ton of stuff out there, and I don't. This I didn't want this to be a comprehensive thing. Just as a kind of a note, if you're interested in seeing if there are vampires in this story, go check out those theories. Google up Google it up and, and read up read up on it. Uh, it's kind of fun. Yeah, I think some go so far as to say that he might be the Night's King. Himself, right? yep, yep. Yeah. Some say, yeah, offspring of the Night's King. Some say the uh, the Night's King himself, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just um, living on. Yeah. Living on living through on. the years. Oh, I think you've summarized uh, the theory rather well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so go check that out uh, if, you're, if you're interested. It's kind of fun. Um, okay. Let's go to Brienne. You asked, I think this was your question. Um, hmm. Brienne doesn't flinch. Will there come a moment where she will have difficulty killing someone important to the story? That's juicy. Right? So who would she have trouble killing? Anyone good. Yeah. Go ahead. Or anyone she has a relationship with. Yeah. I mean, Jamie mm-hmm. is obviously the the easy answer. Um, I don't know why she'd need to kill him, but I think uh, in a in a previous Davos After Dark, we theorized that perhaps um, uh, Brienne will act as Jamie's champion if if they end up getting caught by the um, oh, the Brotherhood Without Banners, mm. and. 
you know, Brienne going, we, we end up, uh, Jamie's arc in a dance with dragons with Brienne finding him and saying, come with me, you know, I've found Sansa or whatever. Yep. And we know that she was just with Lady Stoneheart, yep. which led me to theorize that perhaps she's walking into a trap and, uh, Brienne will have to end up defending Jamie or maybe fight Jamie or something like that. So that is the easy answer of, uh, will she have to fight Jamie and will she flinch at that point? Which I would think she would, because true love trumps all. Wait, wait, <laughs> I missed in the theory why she would have to fight Jamie. I could see having to stand in for Jamie. Maybe somehow they're forced to fight each other. Mm. I don't know. From a Lady Stoneheart perspective. My memory's hazy, but what I remember from that is that uh they're about to be hung by Lady mm-hmm. Stoneheart. She and Pod and maybe Hyle, I don't remember. Yep. Um and she says something. I don't even know that we know what, what she says. Mm-hmm. But then later, yeah, she finds Jamie. And yep. the implication is that, she, at least I thought, that Undead Cat has basically said, okay, you go free, but you have to bring Jamie to me. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, she's going to kill Jamie or put him on trial or do something with him there. And then right. what will Brienne do? Mm-hmm. But that whole thing bothered me. It felt like, why isn't Brienne speaking up to Kat about what's going on? Like, just explain what's happening. Why are you, like, this seems like something you should be able to talk your way out of easily. I don't, maybe my memory's just bad. Well, Lady Stoneheart is not in a good place. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if she's interested in listening. Yeah. So, but yeah, uh, or maybe even having maybe i don't know if you can kill lady stoneheart because she's already dead but you know she's been on this mission for catlin for so many books and maybe she's going to have to dispatch lady stoneheart finally and how will that be mm-hmm. you know that'd be interesting or maybe uh she's also got uh, i mean she's she's getting over renly you know Yep. She's not She's not telling herself she's getting over Renly, but she is. So maybe there will come a situation with Stannis, who she's always blamed. So. Yeah, would she, would she flinch to that? I think she would. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. Yeah. So there's Stannis, there's Lady Stoneheart, there's Jaime. Um, would she flinch to kill Sir Hylehunt? I don't know. I don't think she would. Ooh, here's a juicy one. Arya. If Arya yeah, comes back know. all murdery. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe gets it in her head to try to kill uh, Jamie or something because he's a Lannister. Hmm. That could be juicy. Yeah, could be interesting. I don't know. I think that's all I got there. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, Do you let's... got any others? No, let's kill it. Yeah, okay. I think I think that's a good Davos after dark. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's move on to uh, our sign offs. How about it? Let's do it. So, as the laundry doer in my household, I would just urge you, all of you out there, this uh, to to if you find your clothes are shrinking, don't blame the washerwoman or the man. Please and thank you. Blame doesn't enter into it. Just take their pay. 
from my perspective, I'm just going with uh, with the episode title. Uh, everyone out there, remember who you are. Uh, okay, Dad. Get into times of trouble or something, kind of forgetting your path. Just remember who you are at your core. It's uh, it's amazing what doing that can uh, can bring you back to. So. You're a good person with a good heart. Most likely you are. <laughs> yeah. Very good, Skid. All right. Thanks, everybody. All right. Yep. See ya. Bye. Think about you all the time, but I don't need the same. It's lonely where you are. Come back down. Was the Transformers tweet? That was that was while I was on vacation too, right? Oh yeah, I did talk about that. <laughs> Jeez, it's amazing how even Anthony Hopkins cannot look good in a movie. They managed to screw even him up. It's crazy. Yeah, well, we talked about it with Star Wars before with the prequels. Uh huh. But 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 part part, part of. Just a quick sidebar. Part of what surprises me is like, how did you get attached to this project? Did yeah. you not ask to read a script? Like, did you do? Do they not give it to you because they don't want spoilers leaked, and so you only got sides of your lines? And like, if that's true, and that's the way movies are going, that's really sad. Well, you know, we've we've seen that lately. Matt Damon doing that Great Wall movie that was just terrible. Yeah. And it's, yeah, you wonder like. Didn't he help produce that too, though? Yeah, something. Yeah. Anthony, you're not hurting for money. Well, we I don't know, know whether he is or not. Although I assume he isn't. Uh... Yeah, um, but the problem with the Transformers movie is it had so much potential to be very good, but oh, they really? tried to they they it had some really cool premises, and the idea of Anthony Hopkins' character was really cool, but just from a script level it was just terrible and it was that way with the rest of the movie they tried to fit too much into it and they tried to have too many characters and oh. storylines going that everything just got really dumbed down and uh yeah should have been two movies they tried but, to make it a marvel movie but didn't have the writing chops exactly yep the the writing and what they tried to pack into this movie it just didn't work my four-year-old loved it. Oh, that's good. And so that that should tell you guys everything that you need to know about this film. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. Hey, Blood Riders. Scad came up with a great theme for this episode and finding yourself and being yourself. And we had all these people, you know, assuming different identities and everything. So we used one song for the episode. I know it doesn't feel like enough to only do one song in a Davos Fingers episode. That's all that came up. So I, uh, in sticking with that theme, I threw on the song Name by the Goo Goo Dolls. It's an old school song back when the Goo Goo Dolls made really good, like important music. And uh, that song was, was huge to me in my younger days. So again, that song's called Name. It's by the Goo Goo Dolls from their kind of breakthrough album, A Boy Named Goo. So check it out if you so like it. And I uh, can't wait to catch you guys next time. It's going to be fun. See you later. Much love from uh, Bullscat and myself. Mm-hmm.